Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes List, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Scott Horton, author, podcaster, and anti-war activist. We talk about the conflict in the Ukraine and how it came to pass. Scott goes through all the events that led to this war, starting with the fall of communism in 1992 to the coup d'etat in 2014 and up to present day. Scott Horton, good to see you again. Hello, my friend. How are you? I am good. And wow, what a crazy world we live in. huh? How's everything been? <laughs> it's a little stressful to tell you the truth. No, I'm okay. But yeah, the, the world's look better. Right? Yeah. To get right to the point, we haven't been this close to nuclear war with Russia, which would end pretty much all human life in the Northern Hemisphere anyway, since 1962. Mm. Mm. And, the Cuban uh, Missile Crisis. Yeah, and that was... Uh, you know, instigated, obviously, by, you know, sort of like close border nuclear country and another one sort of like, it actually is like kind of the same two players, right? That's right. Exactly what happened was, I'm sure you're referring to, mm -hmm. the Americans deployed these Jupiter missiles in Turkey, <laughs> and that provoked the Russians to uh -huh. respond by putting missiles in Cuba. That's what you meant, right? No, no, no. But everybody knows Kennedy secretly agreed mm -hmm. to get those Jupiter missiles out of Turkey mm. if the Russians would very publicly get their missiles out of Cuba. Mm. And that was how they solved that one. But it was a fight that America had started in the first place. Absolutely. Mm. And it was very, very close to nuclear war. Uh, so we're here today talking about war again. And, you know, I don't necessarily like that we are doing that. But Scott, you have this way of explaining all of the stuff that happened that led up to, uh, you know, when, when we were talking about what was going on in the Middle East in the other episode, you know, that was very enlightening to me. So I brought you back on the show to talk about what's going on with the Ukraine, because that seems to be a whole thing. So let's start from the beginning. What's going on? What happened there? Yeah. Well, let's start with, if it's okay, let's start mm -hmm. with current day right uh -huh. now. What's happening is mm -hmm. the Russians have invaded Ukraine mm -hmm. and despite all the propaganda going around about what a hard time they're having, mm. I think they're more or less on schedule mm. for conquering at least the eastern half of the country. Mm. And then it remains to be seen whether they're going to try to bite off the western half as well, which, you know, already it's a catastrophe. Certainly thousands of people have been killed. I believe the UN has confirmed more than 300 civilian deaths, which is rather low. It has not been a blitzkrieg shocking off, you know, heavy bombers over Vietnam carpet bombing type campaign. If that's what people are imagining, it really has been much more focused on hitting military targets. Some civilian targets have been attacked and people mm -hmm. have been killed, but you can tell by those numbers, two weeks of war, 300 something civilians dead could be worse. I'm not justifying. Oh, way, but I'm just way saying, worse. Yeah. You, you could imagine a blitzkrieg type assault Certainly more than 300 civilians were dead after the first two weeks of America's invasion of Iraq in 2003. No mm. question about that. So again, I'm just saying, not from a moral standpoint, but just a descriptive one, what is happening here. Mm. From a moral standpoint, it's an aggressive war. Mm. And, and even though I'm about to tell you why this is all America's fault, I, that doesn't justify what Putin did. What he did was unreasonable. It was rational, mm. but it was not right. Mm. And there were plenty of other options and I didn't even think that hard about it. But I saw a guy with a Twitter said, well, geez, he could have asked for United Nations peacekeeping forces to come and occupy the Donbass to negotiate the peaceful resolution there. 
He could have done this at another few ideas, whatever. He didn't have to invade. So I am about to tell you that this is all Bill Clinton and George Bush and Barack Obama and Donald Trump and Joe Biden's fault. And I don't mean just President Joe Biden. I mean, Joe Biden all along Mm. as chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee in the Senate in the 1990s and in the Bush years and co-pilot during the Obama years. The only time he was not involved in expanding NATO right up to Russia's borders was in the four short years of Donald Trump. The rest of the time, Joe Biden has been riding shotgun or driving the car on this policy the whole damn time. Mm. So that's something. But that, you know, obviously, so that people don't misunderstand me, especially Putin has his own agency and his men follow their orders, illegal or not, and they're responsible for their own actions. But all I'm saying is the only reason there is a Cold War between America and Russia in the context in which this conflict in Ukraine is taking place is because of the United States of America. And, you know, as long as I'm rambling about this, <laughs> I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm America. Mm. I don't have a partisan, you know, identification mm. with David Koresh or with Saddam Hussein or Muammar Gaddafi or Bashar al-Assad or the Ayatollah Khamenei or Chairman Xi or Vladimir Putin. I've been to Nuevo Laredo and to Vancouver, BC is my international travels. Okay. I'm from here. And obviously what I want is what's best for my own country and for the rest of humanity too. But this propaganda narrative going around that anybody disagrees about any Russia issues is somehow on Putin's payroll or somehow a devoted member of the cult of Vladimir Putin or some kind of thing is such a stupid lie. And it should strike people as a stupid and desperate lie. You know, it's like after September 11th, when they refused to air Osama bin Laden's message to America because they said there's probably secret code language activating sleeper cells (laughs) to kill your mama, when the reality was they didn't want the American people to hear what this guy had to say. Mm. That he was doing this for reasons that you could understand if you were allowed to hear them. And that was why they censored it. Well, they're kicking the Russians off of American media now. They're doing everything they can to marginalize anyone. You know, the dean of the realist school of foreign policy theory in the United States of America right now is a guy named John Mearsheimer at the University of Chicago. You can't get more credentialed than this. He's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. He writes books about foreign affairs for universities, Mm -hmm. right? And they're going after him, calling him a Putinist. As though there's such a thing as that, a Putinist (laughs) in the United States of America. Like he's a Trotskyite or a Stalinist. He's a Putinist. Except that what's Putin's ideology? Conservatism? (laughs) Christianity? Corrupt crony capitalism? We already have all of that in the United States of America. There's no cult of Putin in the United States. I think you could find a very small you know, insignificant sector on 4chan somewhere, whatever, where they go, yeah, Putin's a real man or whatever. But nobody else thinks that. There's just no, and look, contrast that to the old days of the Soviet Union. There were American communists who absolutely were dedicated to the communist ideology and therefore the Soviet empire. And this, even with Stalin at the reins of it all, they were devoted to the Soviet Union. Now, far fewer than supposed mm-hmm. and never really a true threat to, the, to America like they portrayed it in the McCarthy era or the first Red Scare for that matter. But still, there was such a thing as at times, you know, maybe even millions of American communists who favored the Soviet Union. There just is nothing like that in America today. 
And anybody who says so is either lying or they're just stupid, right? But there's nothing like, you know, the Communist Party USA, which was absolutely devoted to the Soviet Union in name and proudly, you know, so, right? I mean, there's just nothing like that in America. So, and frankly, there's not much of a Russian lobby. I mean, if they have their interactions with the executive branch, but they don't even really lobby Congress because they know that they're just radioactive and nobody wants them around anyway. They don't even go to Capitol Hill. They don't send lobbyists around to do, you know, bombard the media with press releases all day and all these kinds of things, the way the Israelis and the Saudis and the Ukrainians are doing right now. They know that that would probably be more counterproductive than anything else, probably. So they don't even really do that. They just have their foreign minister talk to our foreign minister and, and just try to Try to get along that way is how they've handled their business. So there just is no real effort to tell this side of the story for Russia's interests. Mm -hmm. The people who are telling this side of the story are like me, mm -hmm. Americans who want what's best for us. And when I say best, I mean to not get nuked. In fact, if we're all homeless and destitute with a broken dollar and a broken empire and a civil war, it's still better than getting nuked, okay? When getting nuked is the worst case scenario. And I've come to find out, come to realize in, in just, you know, recent days and weeks here that people really don't know about nukes. Not the way they did when I was a kid where we were brought up in the 1980s on the day after and the Red Scare, you know, the first Reagan term was pretty brinksmanshipy. You know, in 1983, there was a real war scare during the Able Archer exercise and stuff. But nowadays, people are so detached from that, they don't understand. But let me go ahead and tell you, one good H-bomb would kill all of Austin, Texas, from Breaker Lane to Slaughter Lane, okay? All of us would be dead. All of us. From one bomb. That's how powerful a low megaton yield thermonuclear bomb is. That's how destructive that is, okay? So in other words... You can not fight Russia. That's it. You just can't. And you can't fight China. And for that matter, you can't fight Israel or France or Britain either because they can deter war because they can destroy our civilization. Even the Chinese only have 300 nukes. 300 nukes is enough to erase the United States of America's existence from the face of the planet Earth. The Russians got 6,000. 2,000 at the ready, 4,000 more on the shelf if they need them. All right. So that's why there's really nothing else in the world that's even ranks on the same list of categories of things that are important to humanity other than America's relationship with Russia. Just nothing else matters. If America, if we devolve into a general nuclear war with Russia, that'll be the end of Northern humanity the people maybe in Australia and Tasmania and Argentina and Chile will somehow survive. But the bulk of humanity would starve to death from the nuclear winter, would kill crops all across the world for decades, probably, because the soot would go above the clouds where it can't get rained out and just block the sun and all the crops die and the people just lay down and die by the billions and billions and billions. We're talking the end of the world. So... 
hey, maybe we could like find a better way to proceed than all this brinksmanship. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Does that sound naive? Like those guys at antiwar.com have these really radical positions <laughs> about like, let's really try very, very, very hard to avoid a thermonuclear war. All right. So that's so where we're at. Now you want to go are. back? Let's go back. Let's and, go back. Uh, and, and go back to the actual start of the story, which mm-hmm. I think you alluded to. It, it, it came at the end of the Cold War. Right. A lot of brinksmanship between the USSR and the USA. The Cold War ends. What happens? Yeah. All right. So, let, well, let's talk about the brinksmanship for a mm-hmm. second there. One of the things that Ronald Reagan was famous for when he came into power was he you know, said extremely provocative things, including joking around that the bombing starts in five minutes mm-hmm. and this kind of stuff. And he called them the evil empire. He said, tear down this wall. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, he was building up America's nuclear forces and including he, uh, I, if I remember this right, Jimmy, the, the Russians had uh, deployed some medium range missiles in Eastern Europe. And Reagan said, oh, yeah, I'll match you. And he started putting in all these what they call Pershing missiles, mid-range nuclear missiles into Germany. And the Germans went along with this. And it was a bunch of them. And then he traded them all away. And he said, hey, let's sign the INF Treaty. Hey, let's be friends, Gorbachev. You ain't so bad. Once the old guys died and Gorbachev came in, he was in his 40s, young guy. So, oh, we can, I can work with you, pal. And they started working together. And they ended the Cold War before H.W. Bush even came in. Reagan ended the Cold War simply by dealing with Gorbachev. And Gorbachev, believe me, compared to the, the old guys that he, who finally all died, like six in a row died or something, finally left him in there. He was just so much better of a, of a man to work with and was determined to try to reform the Soviet Union and to try to turn it into something other than a totalitarian nightmare, which is what it was. And so... They, he was a partner. So, and people, all the hawks to Reagan's right were pissed. They called him Neville Chamberlain appeasing <laughs> Hitler at Munich because Ronald freaking Reagan said, I've got to deal with these commies that they're going to get rid of their missiles and I'm going to get rid of mine. And I'm pretty sure that was the phrase was coined. Trust, but verify. Mm-hmm. In other words, trust means I don't trust you at all, but I'm being nice and pretending to trust you. Mm-hmm. And verify means I'll trust my own guys when they tell me that you're within the rules, Right. And so they did it and they ended the Cold War. And because of Reagan's like, hey, let's be friends sort of a stance, when the people started fleeing across the border from Hungary into Austria and then challenging Soviet borders in Eastern Europe all across the way and including in, in, at the Berlin Wall, Gorbachev didn't kill them. He didn't kill them. That had been the Soviet policy for people not familiar, the young people in the audience. It used to be you try to climb over the wall to escape from the USSR. They machine gun you to death. And in this case, no, they just let everybody go. The wall came down the end of 88, beginning 89. They tore the the wall in Berlin down and it took the process took a little while between the end of the Cold War and the final fall of the Soviet Union, which came on Christmas Day, 1991. And so that was about halfway through Bush Sr.'s term was the final end of the USSR. And Bush Sr., to his credit, by the way, Reagan before him, but then Bush Sr. went over there and signed multiple treaties with the Soviets and then even the Russian successor state uh, right up until the last days of his presidency when he was the lamest of lame ducks in early January 1993. Bush Sr. went back over to Russia, signed one more treaty to reduce nukes way down. So really heroic stuff there, the way that they handled that for the most part. 
But a big part of what built the confidence in the Soviets that they could do the right thing here and it wasn't going to blow up in their face was that Bush and his Secretary of State, James Baker, and along with the French, the Germans, and the British, all promised the Soviets that if you withdraw your forces from Germany, never even mind all of Eastern Europe, but you withdraw your forces from Germany, we promise not to expand NATO one inch to the east. Mm -hmm. Now, in some circumstances, it's clear that they were just talking about even within Germany. They weren't going to go into East Germany. They were going to stay west of the Elbe River for whatever reason. But there are liars who try to twist the context and pretend that that's all they ever said. But that's not true. And you can look at the George Washington University National Security Archive, and they have all these different statements by the Western leaders. And there's a, some brand new statements. In my recent speech at antiwar.com slash Scott, you can find brand newly unearthed statements written down in the documents from the diplomats from 1990 saying, we promised the Soviets we won't go one inch east of Germany. Therefore, Poland can never be brought into NATO, et cetera. So that was the promise. Now, Bill Clinton came in. And wait, he wait, wait. Broke before before okay, we get ahead. to Bill Clinton. Okay. Let's talk about this chicken Kiev. Oh, yes. Speech, thank you. Thank that, you. That's, a, that's an important part yeah. of our story. Okay. So this is actually Bush Sr.'s humiliation. It's, it's the funniest story. It's kind of buried. You can see why it's kind of a buried story because it's sort of embarrassing. <laughs> Bush Sr. tried to save the USSR. The reason why is because he was afraid of Ukrainian Nazis. He was afraid of the guys who were the hardcore right-wing nationalist ethnic Ukrainians who had sided with Hitler in the Second World War and who had worked for the CIA in stay-behind programs during the Cold War. So Bush Sr., as former chief of the CIA, he knew very well the dangers of this group of people, and he preferred to keep Ukraine, Belarus, and I believe the Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, all under Soviet control. And he proposed essentially, or I guess the Kremlin had proposed, and Bush Sr. was encouraging these countries to go along with the Kremlin in this new federation. It won't be Marxist communism anymore, but you'll still be in essentially a federal government as states in the union under Moscow. And then that didn't happen. It all mm -hmm. fell apart anyway. So he's got egg on his face. He looks like a fool trying to preserve the Soviet Union. When are you kidding me? You were trying to preserve the Soviet Union in any form, you know, the evil empire as Reagan had correctly called it. But here's what's instructive about it for our purposes. Is that in August of 1991, so six months before the final end of the thing, mm -hmm. he went to Kiev and he gave a speech that happened to have been authored by Condoleezza Rice his son's later national security advisor and secretary of state. And what he says in there, the provocative part that got him in trouble even back then mm. was he said, independence is not the same thing as freedom. And what he was trying to tell them was, forget independence, just be happy that you're getting some freedom. Mm. And he says, America will not support an effort to replace a faraway tyranny with a local despotism and we won't support an effort that will, I forgot his exact words here, but something close to, you know, we're, we're reluctant because of the dangers of your radical ethnic nationalism, something very, you know, like that. Mm. So what he's talking about is these hardcore anti-Russian Ukrainians in the West, mm. some of whom are still proud Hitler loving Nazis. So 
Then when he got home, William Sapphire, the neoconservative hawk at the New York Times, coined this the Chicken Kiev speech. And a lot of people have heard of it, but don't know that that's the context. Well, that's the context. He was telling them that whatever, whatever independence you get, I insist that you go along with the Kremlin on their plan for the future of y'all's relationship. And you're not going to get any support from the United States in trying to break away from them. I'm on Team Gorby here, mm. kind of thing. That's what he was telling them. Mm. So now, the two important things about that is one, even though that's embarrassing and ridiculous, it is probably true that his attitude made it easier for the Soviet reformers to actually go ahead and finish abolishing the thing mm. because they did not have... Bush Sr. very much was not dancing on their grave and laughing in their face and spiking the football and making fun of them. He didn't go to the Berlin Wall and give a big speech about how capitalism rules and you guys lose or any of that stuff. And so the fact that he was going, hey, 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 Moscow, let's, let's be pals and work together and just kind of gave all, you know, I don't know how to say it, but, you know, signals of cooperation and, and easygoingness to them during this transition made it easier for them to finish the USSR off finally, mm -hmm. I think, in the end. Whereas he could have provoked a real reaction and, and helped reinstill support for the communists there. And then the other thing is, George Bush Sr. knew what he was talking about, mm -hmm. about the dangers. I mean, think about how weird that kind of is, right? Like, if you don't know anything about it, it's like, it's like the president goes to Tibet and warns against the dangers of ethnic chauvinism and separatism. <laughs> it's like, well, you know what I mean? Like, okay, we didn't really realize that you thought that was that big of a deal. Or what is the big deal there that we need to know about or something? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Well, there's something there that you needed to know about. Is that, and we're talking about Ukraine. I mean, look at a map. This is a hell of a place to be stuck between Germany and Russia during both world wars. And they were, of course, forcefully subsumed into the Soviet Union by Lenin and Stalin. Stalin, who starved three million of them to death, stealing all their wheat in the 1930s and the Holodomor genocide, frankly. Then you had their liberation by Hitler's German Nazis, who came and stuck it to the commies, but then perpetrated the Holocaust and murdered hundreds of thousands of Jews and Poles and were Nazis the whole time they were there. Then the Soviets came back <laughs> to liberate them from their Nazi rule again. And then they lived under Soviet tyranny until 1991. Absolute totalitarian tyranny. Whatever people say about, whatever people think nowadays about the relative sins of communism and Nazism, let me tell you, they're pretty equal. Anybody who tries to play down the horrors of Soviet communism is just a fool living in their ridiculous hope for how they want this country to be someday or something like that. But it was an absolute terror state. Simple as that. But anyway, so there are, you know how in America we have a bunch of Republicans and Democrats who all call each other Nazi and commie all day? Mm -hmm. You really got Nazis and commies over there. Like <laughs> I, I saw this one news story back in 2015 or something where this gang of thugs beat up this old lady. I was like, oh man, what's going on there? The gang of thugs are a bunch of Hitler-loving Nazis. But the old lady that they beat up, not that I'm justifying what they did to her, but this is the rest of the story. She was laying a rose at the feet of a statue of Vladimir Lenin. Mm. 
And so they were like, hey, you can't do that. And so they kicked her ass. Mm. So when you talk about hard feelings, man, they got real hard feelings there in a way that Northerners and Southerners got over after back when they were done killing the Indians out West or whatever, 120 years ago or something. These guys' hard feelings haven't really waned so much. Now, on the, I'm not saying that the pro-Russian forces there are left-leaning because they're really not. They're all kind of right-wing nationalists at this point. But it's very much a split between the Ukrainians and the, and the Russian and how they favor each other and how they look at each other there. Now, and again, the CIA backed these right-wing forces in Ukraine during the Cold War. And Bush, as the former director of the CIA, must have known quite a bit about that. And... You know, I'd like to know more of the history behind that speech and whether, was that Condoleezza Rice's line or was that his own line that he put in there or what? You know what I mean? So I don't know what she knows about anything, frankly, but. <laughs> okay, so this Chicken Kiev speech happens. Yes. You have a bunch of people that, that are trying to figure out a new world order post, you know, the fall of the USSR. And Bill Clinton, you know, beats Bush in the presidential race. Yep. He comes into office and he starts expanding NATO, contrary to the promises that Bush made to Gorbachev. Right. He's expanding NATO. At this point, the entire North Atlantic Treaty Organization was made to oppose you know, the Warsaw Pact that existed during the Cold War. Right. So what was the point at this point to expanding? Because that part, I don't really understand why... Clinton yeah. expanded NATO. Man. Well, it's more than one reason, of course, like always with these things. But like in order of importance, Lockheed money, Polish votes, and then some BS story about spreading Pax Americana <laughs> that wherever we add people to our security umbrella, we're creating peace, delivering peace. Just the problem is Everybody in the outside of that umbrella don't see it so much as an umbrella as a spear directed at them. And in this case, I'm talking about expanding NATO into Eastern Europe. As you say, the Warsaw Pact is gone. So then, obviously, from the Russian point of view, what's the purpose of this thing? Who is it that you're protecting Poland and the Baltic states from? Us? We didn't do anything. Looks a lot more like you're just building up a military alliance on our shores. And, or, you know, on their, in their front yard, as they say. And, you know, frankly, I, I want to go back and do more research into this. I'm sure there are some exceptions, but I guess it must be right, as uh, John Mearsheimer has said, that if you really go back and look at the major proponents of NATO expansion in the 90s, even through the W. Bush years, until the coup of 2014, which we'll get to, mm. but... During this whole early part of this, the first two rounds, two major rounds, or even first three rounds of NATO expansion, that they really weren't saying, we have to do this to threaten Russia. They weren't even really saying it quietly. They weren't saying that this is really for Russia. They were saying, essentially, like to put words in their mouth, but like to sum it up, essentially, that this is how to keep Latvia and Lithuania and Estonia and... Poland and Slovakia and Slovenia from fighting among each other is by bringing them all into a big NATO alliance together under American military authority. So the idea being just like the way it's inconceivable that Texas and Oklahoma would get into a fight, like a, a military fight mm -hmm. that could never happen because 
even if they really had something to fight about, the federal government would simply intervene and has so much power that they could prevent that. And they, they do force a peace between the 50 states. Not that the 50 states otherwise would be threatening war, <laughs> but you never know. Americans can be pretty ornery sometimes. But then, so this is our, pro, this is exactly the name of our dilemma, right? Mm -hmm. Is any government powerful enough to keep the peace between the 50 states is powerful enough to try to keep the peace between the 192 states in the world, <laughs> right? But the problem is whoever is not in on the military alliance as a membership of the one world army, they're on the outside of it and it's pointed at them. So I think Mearsheimer is right, probably that these guys essentially believe a lot of their own public relations about we're just trying to be friendly and we're just trying to, yeah, maybe make a little money selling Lockheed products and <laughs> make sure we get reelected collecting Polish votes in our districts and states and what have you. But, Polish votes as in? Oh, in as US. in Illinois. Yeah, as okay. in Bill Clinton's reelection in 1996. This is a major deal. So we got to get those Polish votes in Illinois and we're going to bring Poland into NATO. We're going to, you know, mm. this That'll do your margin in an American election. And, you know, the old country matters a lot to a lot of people. And so... Well, you imply, at least in your article, that a part of the reason was they didn't think that the European Union was expanding fast enough. Right. And this was a way to get them to... This is the most infuriating yeah. thing. Mm -hmm. So this comes from Brent Scowcroft, mm -hmm. who was George Bush Sr.'s right-hand man. General Scowcroft, his national security advisor, co-author of his memoirs, mm -hmm. and is taken to be publicly his closest friend. In fact, Bush Sr. had Scowcroft write an essay in the Wall Street Journal in October 2002 called Don't Attack Saddam. Mm. And that was a message from the father to the son oh, through wow. Scowcroft. That's who Scowcroft is, okay? Just so people get it straight. This is George Bush Sr.'s number one guy. And he opposed NATO expansion. That should have been the end of the argument right there, mm. right? This isn't, we're not talking about the guys at antiwar.com and Ron Paul and Pat Buchanan and the Cato Institute. We're talking about the grayest graybeards like Brent Scowcroft and many others, we talk about that in a minute, were saying not to do this. But Scowcroft later explained that he thought one of the reasons that they did NATO expansion, again, has nothing to do with threatening Russia. Mm -hmm. They're like, ah, they're way over there. They got, there. we'll get to that later. Cross mm -hmm. that bridge when you get to it, whatever. This is, he says, the Americans were even more determined to spread the European Union into the East than the French and the Germans were. <laughs> and probably, I think everybody can guess, this has a lot to do with immigration. These are much poorer countries in Eastern Europe, and so they're all going to run West to get a higher-paying job, and then that causes, as they say, economic, economic anxiety among the people in those Western countries. So we can only take so many Serbs at a time. This kind of attitude. Same as you have in America about Mexican immigration and, and other Latin American immigration. So the French and the Germans were more reluctant to expand the EU. So according to Brent Scowcroft, the Americans thought, oh, well, what we'll do is we'll go ahead and bring them into our military alliance, which is like part and parcel and handshake partners and in, in deal with the whole EU project. And we'll just bring them into our military alliance first as a way to fast track their integration into the common market, <laughs> which is just crazy that you would do that. It's just nuts. In fact, I saw on Twitter today, Someone posted a clip of Joe Biden from 1997 championing NATO expansion. And at that time, they were just talking about, we're going to bring in Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic. 
And Biden says, well, look, I mean, obviously, if we brought in the Baltic states, that would be really provocative and would provoke a really strong reaction from the Russians. But we're not talking about that. We're just talking about Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic. But like, so that's his own words right there in 97 saying, no, I mean, come on, if we went too far and we went and brought the Balkans, the, the Baltic states in, that that could be a real problem. That might really provoke a response from the Russians. And this has been still under Yeltsin, who was their guy. Mm-hmm. Never even mind under old throat slitten Vladimir here, you know, who everybody's so afraid of. So, you know, that was the thing. And it wasn't just Brent Scowcroft. It was George Kennan, who had coined the containment policy in 1946 with his article on the sources of Soviet conduct in foreign affairs. His rival, Paul Nitza, who wrote NSC 68, the blueprint for the American empire, uh, the doctrine of it anyway, and was the champion of Soviet rollback. Containment ain't good enough. Let's roll them back, even at the risk of nuclear war. That was Paul Nitza. Then you had Robert McNamara, notorious Secretary of Defense during the Vietnam War under Kennedy and Johnson. Then you had in the Senate, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the neoconservative and anti-Soviet hawk. He said, if we do this, if this was in a fight with Joe Biden on the Senate floor, according to the New York Times, if you can believe a word they say, uh, that Moynihan said, this is like putting an iron chain around Russia's neck. Why would we do that? They're our friends now. These are the guys who got rid of the commies for us. We're going to put an iron chain around their neck. And then I swear this is true, according to the New York Times. According to the New York Times, it's true. Then Senator Joe Biden, the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, was seen stampeding around the floor of the Senate, flailing his arms in the air and saying, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, you don't know what you're talking about. We can do whatever we want and it'll be fine. And the Russians, what are they going to do about it? Blah, blah, blah. Mm. So and then you had Sam Nunn and Bill Bradley might remember Bill Bradley ran against Al Gore in the primaries in 2000, the senator. Also a very good basketball player. Oh, right yeah, now. there you go. And a real expert on Russia issues and quite a few other senators. And then according to the New York Times, a solid majority, like you could say the, I think the way they put it, the State Department and the Defense Department said they don't want to do this. And I just talked with my friend Peter Van Buren, who was in the State Department at that time, and he confirmed this to me on the radio two days ago that the State Department itself was against it. Bill Clinton's Secretary of Defense, William Perry, was against it and almost resigned over it, but didn't. And that man, he should have. That might have been the deal killer. That, oh my God, what's happening? Our Secretary of Defense just resigned in protest over a provocative move against the Russians. Maybe we need to snap to and pay attention here for a second and turn off Monica Lewinsky and turn on NATO expansion. Start paying attention to what matters in the world for a moment, you know? And now, so George Kennan, he's the most quotable here from not just his essay that he wrote in the New York Times, but he gave an interview with Thomas L. Friedman in 1998, where he's just beside himself. You can tell he's an emotional wreck as he's talking about this. He's like 92 years old. Again, he's given this interview to Thomas Friedman and he's just, he's yelling at Thomas Friedman. And, and you can tell he's singling out not Biden by name, but he's saying these senators. Mm -hmm. So it's not even just Bill Clinton. It's these senators who are pushing this stuff. Again, for those Polish votes and Hungary, I don't know, there are many Hungarian votes, uh, Slovakian votes, Czech votes in America. I guess in some neighborhoods, in some cities, it it counts for a lot. You know, I don't know where there's a big Czech population in America, but anyway, that was a big part of it. Anyway, Kennan is saying, I'll tell you exactly what's going to happen here. All the NATO expand, he says, this is the start of a new cold war. 
and all the people who are telling us now that this isn't even about Russia. This isn't pointed against Russia. And, oh, we like Russia. We'll, we'll invite them in maybe at some point. We'll be friends. Whatever. All these people, when Russia reacts, as I'm predicting they will, all these same people telling us it's no big deal are going to say, well, see Russian aggression. That's why we have to do this, to defend Europe from Russia. Mm. And then he says, but that is just wrong. So there you go. That's 1998, where he tells you exactly what's going to happen. And he tells you exactly what the liars on TV are going to say when it does happen. <laughs> that, oh, you see, this is everybody's fault but ours. When, nope, it's theirs, because they didn't listen to George Kennan. And by the way, you can find this open letter. At the time, Susan Eisenhower, Dwight Eisenhower's granddaughter, hosted a thing where she had an open letter signed by 50 of all of the most establishment graybeards, mm -hmm. the most prominent centrist foreign policy establishment leaders for the whole Cold War era, and including just admiral after admiral after general after general, three and four star guys, mm -hmm. just endless parades of them. Robert Gates, who you know as mm -hmm. Obama, uh, George Bush, and then Barack Obama's Secretary of Defense. He had been CIA director. Well, he and Stansfield Turner had both signed it. Former directors of, of Central Intelligence had signed this thing. I mean, what can you say? <laughs> it's like, I don't know if you saw this, that this week, Marco Rubio, mm -hmm. who, for people not familiar with Marco Rubio's foreign policy, he's a hawk on everything, always. Well, he went on the Sunday morning news shows the other day. And he goes, listen, there's a lot of loose talk right now going around about putting a no-fly zone mm -hmm. over Ukraine. Let me just explain to you. That would mean, I think a lot of people don't know what that means. That means we would have to get into dogfights with Russian planes and shoot them down. And we would have our planes shot down. And we would have to also bomb Russian anti-aircraft missiles inside Russia and inside Belarus. It would mean World War III. Mm. Marco Rubio said that <laughs> now either one he's a total dumbass you don't have to listen to him or two when Marco Rubio is telling you you are too much of a hawk you should shut up <laughs> he's right you have gone too far he's taking into account things that you must not be taking into account because otherwise he would be worse than you on everything he's Marco Rubio all right so if you're saying yeah they ought to have a no-fly zone you must not understand that that means thermonuclear war and all right. we all die. All right. Let's go back to 1997. Okay. Right. So you. So have, these were the Rubios yeah. of then. These were mm -hmm. the hawks uh -huh. saying, don't do this. When Robert McNamara, mm -hmm. who killed three million Vietnamese and probably a million each in Laos mm -hmm. and Cambodia, when he's telling you, hey, this is pretty provocative. You just go <laughs> ahead and take that. Okay. Just. You know what? Usually I don't like you that much, Bob McNamara, but in this case, I think I'm going to side with your wise counsel. And the reason I belabor this so much, Jimmy, is because, you know, they that, always teach That us initial that. NATO expansion was such a key part of, of what, course. what caused this. But it, well, it's not just that. It's that the way, they, the way everything is always portrayed is everything is always inevitably the way that it is. Especially, you know, like the... This is my fourth grade social studies version of how history works. But I think this is the average American's idea, too, is and there, there's gray areas here. But I think this is essentially the narrative is that America is a democracy where the adults are mostly literate and caring and have good information from a free press. Mm -hmm. 
and we make the best decisions we can. We nominate and elect the best people that we can from our neighborhoods to represent us. And then they make the best decisions that they can at the time. And most of the time they make the decisions that the American people by and large support. And so, of course, it's the right thing. What are you saying? That most of your country is dumb and stupid and wrong and evil? Obviously, they're not. They're good. And so what they do is right, or at least at the very least, they're trying their best. And if it came to this, well, it's got to be somebody else's fault because it couldn't <laughs> have been something that we did. This is essentially it's all it goes. It, it can be taken for granted that, yeah, of course, we expanded NATO. But Brent Scowcroft and Bob McNamara and George Kennan and Paul Nitza told you not to. And that means simply that Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich and Trent Lott could have chosen otherwise. They just simply could have listened to Kennan instead of their own stupid selves. And they could have done the right thing instead of the wrong thing. You know, um, same well, I, thing for George W. Bush. George W. Bush didn't have to get even made governor of Texas, much less president of the United States. And he didn't have to choose to staff his government with nothing but hawks on every issue. But he did. And then they made choices. But just the point being, and this is just an individualist take, like I don't, I reject, I mean, obviously there are kind of larger sort of forces of opinion out there and whatever, but essentially I don't like it when people talk about the wind of time blowing and the page of history <laughs> turning and the, the inevitability came to pass. Mm. You know what I mean? There's nothing inevitable about this. Human men and women made stupid decisions that they had every reason in the world to know better than to make at the time. Now we're just living in the future, looking back. And it's not just hindsight and Monday morning quarterback stuff. It's the, the doves and the skeptics were right all along, and this proves it. This is their case laid out quite perfectly. Now I'm skipping ahead a little bit, mm -hmm. but that's what we're looking at now is the predictions of all these people from 25 years ago exactly playing out almost... To a T, exactly, you know, to a word, the way that they predicted that it would. Well, so the thing that is still a little bit confusing to me is why Bill Clinton expanded NATO. Because in a sense, like, you, uh, maybe, maybe it is about, like, the European common market and trying to bring a lot of these countries in. I skipped over the Lockheed money there. Yeah, yeah. You want me to talk a little bit more about that? Well, I mean, I, it's a big part of it. Yeah, I think that's definitely a part of it. But uh, like when I was thinking about that era, I, I remember the Clinton presidency being severely weakened because of the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Well, that wasn't until 98, though, you know. And this is something that the Republicans all wanted, too. Mm -hmm. Again, Newt, Newt Gingrich and Trent Lott were totally in on this. There was This was the consensus in the Congress, at mm -hmm. least at the leadership. Mm -hmm. And it really was about Lockheed, man. There's this great article. It was in Playboy magazine in January 2007 by Richard Cummings called Lockheed Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. Mm. And it's about a guy named Richard. No, no, no. Richard Cummings wrote the thing. It's about Bruce Jackson. And Bruce Jackson was an executive vice president from Lockheed Martin. And just so happened to have an ideological crusade to remake the world through American military force. It's a pure coincidence, you understand. It had nothing to do with his profession which was selling fighter jets. <laughs> and so he created the committee to expand NATO in the 1990s. And it was this huge lobbying organization and they had endless billions of American tax dollars to shuffle around. You're talking about a company that makes hundreds of billions of dollars a year. So any money that they spend on lobbying in the tens of millions, 
is absolute pennies to them, right? Is just chump change to them. And it's all tax money anyway. So they're just recycling a small portion of it back in to do the lobbying that it takes to keep the thing going. And then, I mean, it's not hard to go to Capitol Hill and dress everything up as red, white, and blue and patriotism and defense. And everybody loves F-16s, man. Didn't you see Iron Eagle and whatever? And like, <laughs> what's wrong? And then, and, and again, we're not talking about picking a fight with Russia. We're talking about keeping the peace throughout Europe. We're talking about spreading Pax Americana throughout Europe and keeping the peace there, which, you know, luckily we haven't had a major war in Europe since World War II. And so let's keep it that way because, you know, everywhere we are, trouble can't break out. And so it was, that was the narrative that they sold and they put millions and millions of dollars into it. And then this is the same guy who founded the Committee for the Liberation of Iraq. Mm. And he's the same guy. He gave <laughs> millions. This is true. He gave millions of dollars to Bill Crystal to create the Weekly Standard along with Rupert Murdoch money to run the Weekly Standard magazine that was headquarters of the war party 20 years ago and 25 years ago. And, and so then this was it. And they just spent millions and millions of dollars. And again, the votes were a big deal. You get, you know, political operatives who don't have any wisdom about foreign policy or whatever. That's somebody else. That's above their pay grade. That's not their job. But they do know that we could do real well in Illinois <laughs> if we do this Poland thing. Mm. And then so, you know, Justin Romando, the late great uh, editorial director of antiwar.com, wrote his theory of libertarian realism. He says the core of it is that all foreign policy is based in domestic politics. Mm. You know, so, mm. you know, in the, in the simplest way that any of us can identify with, we see well, you can't be soft on communism and you can't be soft on terrorism. You can't be soft on Putin. You got to always be muscular. You got to always be strong. You got to always, you know, this and that, especially the Democrats. Got to have a muscular, we got to go get Libya. That'll be our muscular, smart power foreign policy. And to prove how tough we always are, because you couldn't, what if somebody called us weak? That would be terrifying. We can't have that. So we better roll over and hire someone else's son to go and kill people to make us look tough. And that's, you know, welcome to the mind of a Democrat. Like that's just how they think. Mm -hmm. And um, what's funny about that, I'll give you a perfect example. It's even worse for the women and Hillary Clinton. She lost the primary to Barack Obama for one reason. She was a hawk on a rock mm -hmm. and she wouldn't take it back. Mm -hmm. And so it was like, fine, I guess we're going with him then. I mean, that was what happened. Mm -hmm. Then he makes her secretary of state and her first order of business is I got to get us into a bunch of wars and especially Libya. And the reason she wanted to do Libya and her friends all said this, it was clear. It's in the emails published by the state department, never mind the ones, uh, you know, put on uh, WikiLeaks. It's in the state department emails between her and her advisors that she was going to run on the Libyan war in 2016. That good old Hillary Clinton started a war in Libya and it was great. And not like that stupid old, you know, Bush government and their failed Iraq war. This was smart power at its best. And this was going to be what she ran on in 16. Now, of course, the war was a disaster and she didn't want anything to do with it by 2016. But that was why she started that war. It's because she was saying, well, I got to look strong. I got to look tough. I got to have a muscular. Look, you just lost lady for being too tough. Mm -hmm. You know, in fact, I just talked to a guy last week named Joe Serencioni who is a nuclear weapons expert from the Plowshares Fund. And formerly anyway, but anyway, he's been on Capitol Hill for 30 years. He was telling me, we were talking about anecdotes from the Reagan years. He was up there all along. Mm. 
Mm. And he says to me, this is a real problem with the Democrats, especially is they always got to be tough, 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 no matter what muscular, 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 tough, tough, tough. And I says to him, you know, that's kind of ironic because out here in the country, that's the only thing that is supposedly redeeming about the Democrats is that they're slightly less worse on foreign policy. <laughs> That's the only thing that people like about Democrats is they kind of just left over from Vietnam. They kind of feel like the left is a little bit less genocidal than the right. And then meanwhile, the Democrats in D.C. can do nothing but try to run away from that horrible reputation that they see as like, you know, weakness that they they'll be they perceived be as all hippies on war or yeah. something like that. Right. So I, they got to outflank the Republicans. To yeah. Yeah. It's really a, a terrible phenomenon as it really is bad. And you see like in the, if you go back to the primary of 07 and 08, where you have Dennis Kucinich and Michael Gravel mm -hmm. are over here mm -hmm. on the stage. And then John Edwards, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama are over here. Mm -hmm. And it's like, here are the two human men who care about peace, who care about America, <laughs> who care about humanity, who care about anything but themselves. And then over three is over here is three Hillary Clintons <laughs> running for office, running for power, running for the chance to kill somebody. And which that's a direct quote from Barack Obama. Turns out I'm pretty good at killing people. Yeah. Big surprise. Mm. You know, that's all he ever was was Hillary Clinton. Anyway. But anyway, so, going back to going back Bill, to W. Bill, Bush. Well, we, uh, we're Clinton not still, finished with Clinton. We're not finished with Clinton. Fine. No, no, Are we uh, going to talk about Waco now? Sorry. Well, Go no, ahead. no, no, no. But he starts provoking. He starts the oh the Bosnia wars. Yeah, because of Bosnia. That's a major thing that started. The There's another thing Russian too is the thing. economic stuff. So mm -hmm. first, let's do Bosnia, and then don't let me space out and forget the mm -hmm. economic stuff. So first is. In the Bosnia Wars, he sided against the Serbs. Mm. Now, I don't know everything about this because I was in high school at the time and I only kind of learned after the fact. I've read some articles, but not books. Mm -hmm. But I know some really great guys who are really great on it at the time and have explained this to me. Mm. They had a deal called the Lisbon Arrangement or Agreement mm. or something that essentially, nah, you know, I can't get the details right. I, I forgot the details, how it goes. But it, essentially, they had an agreement to keep the status quo and to keep the peace. Yugoslavia was going to break up, mm -hmm. but Bosnia, Croatia, and Serbia were going to remain in this kind of federal union together. Mm -hmm. And then the American ambassador, Zimmerman, ruined it and botched the deal and told the Croatians, we'll give you a bunch of weapons if you'll go after the Serbs and take more. You're, you guys are settling. You shouldn't settle. Here's some guns. And that was what got that war really going. Mm -hmm. And then there were atrocities on all sides and I don't know all the details, but I'm, I'm sure the Serbs were guilty of at least half of what they were accused of. So Bill Clinton then went in to solve the problem that his government had caused by sending in uh, Richard Holbrook, who did the Dayton Accords and all of that and separated Bosnia. But the whole thing is an American protectorate, you know, occupied by NATO troops to this day anyway. But how, how does Russia situation. come in? Yeah. Well, Russia comes in because the Serbs are their bus buddies. They're mm. Slavs. Well, and this is World this, War I. <laughs> yeah, yeah, ever since World War I. And, and of course, in World War II, they fought against the Nazis mm -hmm. on America and the Soviet side. So this is... A historical alliance know, between yeah. uh, the Serbs and the Russians. And now at the time this is happening, it's happening over the Russians' dead body, right? Like mm. they can't do a damn thing about it at the time. And... Then the same thing happens again in Kosovo in 1999, where it's the Kosovo Liberation Army is a bunch of Bin Ladenite tied gangsters, more criminals than terrorists, but still like pretty bad guys. And 
they wanted to break off Kosovo, which was ethnically Albanian dominated from the control of Serbia. But in order to get away with that, they had to lie and pretend that there was a genocide of 100,000 Kosovar Albanians had already been murdered, Bill Clinton claimed. Mm. And that we had to go and stop this genocide in progress. And the whole thing was an absolute hoax, like Saddam Hussein's nuclear weapons program. It just didn't exist. And when the, they sent the FBI there to find the mass graves, there were no mass graves. They go, oh, the, you know where the bodies are? They're all in that mine shaft. There's nobody in that mine shaft. Oh, you know, you see that hill over there? Well, there's another hill behind that hill. And, and then behind that hill is where the mass grave is. And like, yeah, no, dude, you guys are just making stuff up. They did that in Iraq with the weapons of mass destruction, too. Yeah. You see that hill behind me? There's, a, there's another hill just like it. And then maybe it's in there. Anyway, so the whole thing was a hoax. And in order to do that, Bill Clinton had to essentially, and we could be grateful for this in a silver lining kind of weird way, is that he destroyed the whole you know idea of really the one world white army of the North under the United Nations mm. by doing this because he had to, the Russians had inherited the Soviets veto power on the UN security council. So they would have vetoed a UN resolution. Now, according to the world law and the UN charter, you cannot start a war unless you have a resolution from the United Nations, it's like a declaration of war from the U S Congress from the UN security council to be specific there. You need a UN security council resolution. So they couldn't do that because the Russians would have vetoed it. Clinton said, well, forget it. We'll just do whatever we want. They can't stop us. And so uh, they just used the NATO alliance to wage the war. And then, you know, uh, Bush in 08 recognized Kosovo as a sovereign independent nation, which it's not. So it's got this massive, you type in, everybody listen, type in your phone right now, Google images, Camp Bond Steel. And this thing is like the size of downtown Austin. This huge military base that they've had bigger than downtown Austin. That is, uh, you know, there in Kosovo ever since that time. And again, that was over the Russians' dead bodies. And now here's the most controversial one. Well, all these come up again in Putin's recent statements, by the way. But probably the worst one of these is the least known. And that is that America and Saudi Arabia supported the separatists in Chechnya. And those were, again, veterans of the Afghan war in the 1980s. Bin Ladenite Mujahideen who were fighting for independence from Russia in the Northern Caucasus Mountains. Now, I'm not saying they don't have a right to secede from the Union, the people of Chechnya, if they want to, or Dagestan or whatever. But it is the case that the Russians were not going to let them mm. secede. South of the Caucasus Mountains, Georgia can go. Mm. North of the Caucasus Mountains, we're keeping them. That was the decision that they had made. Well, the CIA teamed up with the Saudis and backed the terrorists against them. Mm. And much more famously... They backed this, the Russian government. Bill Clinton paid the entire tab and the entire cost of that war to crush that insurrection. At the same time, the CIA and the Saudis were backing them. And the Washington Post has a story about how the Saudis did it. But wait, the, wait, wait. So they were on both sides of the... Oh, uh, yeah. That's weird. Why would that make sense in any way? Well... I don't know exactly. I can speculate that they thought that the Russians didn't know for sure that they were backing the Chechens and they were trying to stay on the Russians' good side by helping them. Mm -hmm. They didn't really want to see secession. They want to make sure nobody's going to be able to build a pipeline through there anytime soon, keep the place chaotic. I doubt they thought they could really guarantee the independence of Chechnya or that they really gave a damn about any of that. I think they just wanted to keep them fighting. And, you know, I have quotes in the book of enough already where the CIA says 
after this was so successful in Afghanistan, we could keep using these Mujahideen against the Russians and the Chinese in Central Asia from now on. This is great, dude. These Islamists, you just point them at something and they'll go blow it up for you, you know? <laughs> and um, so we can just keep using them. And they did. And then this is another thing I always forget when I'm rattling this stuff off is that Clinton backed the Mujahideen Uyghurs training in Afghanistan against China. And these are the same Uyghurs who George W. Bush then rounded up and threw in Guantanamo Bay and tortured once America invaded Afghanistan in 2001. And then they're the same Uyghurs that Barack Obama used to fight the dirty war on Al-Qaeda and the CIA side in Syria. So whenever you hear about, oh, Uyghur, Uyghur, Uyghurs, before you think genocide, 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 like in the talking points, ask yourself, what's the CIA using these Mujahideen fighters for now? Where are we keeping them? And when are we using them against China? And, or are we already? But let's but make anyway. sure to cover the, the yeah, no, it's Harvard important, though. boys and, uh, and Russia. Yeah, 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 that, yeah that sure. Economic. And I'm sorry, because I know, yeah, I know we're, we're time limits here. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I mean, that is a big part of it, that they mm. kept this policy of let's just keep backing the Mujahideen. So you can read about that also in the Stratfor emails that WikiLeaks have the American role, not just the Saudis, but of course the CIA were their partners in this effort to back the Chechens. Well, Vladimir Putin just brought this up two weeks ago when he announced he was declaring war. Mm. He goes, yeah, you think we forgot that you backed the Chechen terrorists against us back in the 90s, Bill Clinton? Mm. Yeah, he didn't. Mm. Um, that was a big deal. Okay, now the Harvard boys. I'll do this real quick. I don't know like the very full story about this, but essentially what happened was the American people thought that the American government, that Clinton's government was sending people over there to teach the Russians how to do capitalism. And We'll give them a limited constitutional republic and a capitalist economy like we got. But that wasn't right. They said, you don't want a republic. You want a strong man, dude. A republic sucks. Believe us. We, you know, we're stymied all the time and all the crazy shit we want to do. So you don't want that. You want a strong man system. And as far as capitalism, these aren't libertarians, right? These are neoliberals. This is Bill and Hillary Clinton's men. So this is not, you know, Ron Paul and Lou Rockwell. This is you know, Larry Summers and Robert Rubin and Jeffrey Sachs and David Lipton. I think I know least about him. And they sent these advisors over there. They call them the Harvard boys. And their idea was essentially, well, it's mixed. Part of it was they're just really bad ideas. But part of it too seems to have really been a cynical effort to kick the Russians while they're down and to keep them down. And they induced hyperinflation and destroyed the ruble and therefore destroyed the savings of any independent power in the country anywhere. Also and, caused the collapse of a couple of Wall Street firms that bet on the Russian uh, ruble. <laughs> that, well, there's the silver lining. <laughs> and, and then they came up with these schemes, these voucher schemes and these so-called loans for shares schemes, where essentially after destroying all Russian capital, they said, we'll make international IMF and American capital available to handpicked gangsters to consolidate control over the entire Russian economy. And as unbelievable as this sounds. So this is the origin of the Russian oligarch, basically. This is the origin of the Russian oligarchs. And this is, uh, this is sound unbelievable, but you can check me on this, okay? After the fall of a Marxist economy and a communist totalitarian regime, and the rise of American-induced capitalism in its place. Life expectancy went down by double digits across the country. After the fall of communism, 
and the installation of capitalism. And people starved to death. So America waged an, essentially an economic terror war against the people of Russia in favor of a very small handful of criminal gangsters and oligarchs. Now, this is where Putin got his start too. Matt Taibbi had a great piece about this the other day. He was living in Russia at the time that saw this happen. Putin was the Smithers of the mayor of St. Petersburg, and he was going to get in trouble for corruption. And so he fled the country. Putin arranged for him to escape the country to the West. And as Taibbi says, Putin after, oh, and then that was what got Yeltsin's attention. Yeltsin said, oh, what a loyal guy who helped the mayor of St. Petersburg escape, his, escape the country to escape his corruption charges. What a wonderful Smithers uh, type administrator to have on my team and hired him. Mm-hmm. And that began Putin's rise to power right there was for him participating in a cover-up, basically, right? Then Yeltsin ends up uh, handing the thing over to him, and then he starts jailing and exiling the old oligarchs and hands over their stuff to his loyal guys. <laughs> so he's still a gangster, and you know it's not like he just you know, got rid of gangsters. He just got rid of some gangsters and replaced them with others. But the gangsters that he replaced, like, a lot of what they were doing was they were just taking all the money and running away to America, to England, to Israel, and just, you know, liquidating the Russian people's wealth, essentially. Like, if it was just up to you and me, and we didn't have a dog in the fight, we would have made a really fair system where the people of the Soviet Union get real shares Mm. that courts will uphold that in all the formerly state-owned companies, right? We just make them public companies, and we distribute the shares equally in a fair kind of a way, right? Like, uh, that's they just did not do that. They just absolutely gangsterized the hell out of the place. And then so when strongman Putin came to power and started making that right by at least, you know, going after the guys who'd been ripping everybody off and the guys that he put in power, they had to stay in the country at least a lot of the time and they had to keep the industries going. They couldn't just liquidate everything and run off with their yacht, you know? That was like part of the deal and they had to support him and stay out of politics. And so that's how he's ensconced himself as the strongest man in Russia over the last 20 years there was by, you know, coming in in the name of cleaning up the mess that the Americans had made there. And again, like I can't emphasize enough how, I mean, how insane that sounds and is, (laughs) but also like, I don't know if I had feelings. I think I would be like heartbroken by that or something. Is that the emotion you normal humans have (laughs) that like when you hear that a Soviet economy fell apart and was replaced with a capitalist one and then everybody laid down and died of starvation or of lack of, of medical care and nutrition or they just drank themselves to death because the entire place went absolutely to hell after communism fell. That's just, how can that be the true history of the world? And the answer is because that's what Bill Clinton did to those people. That's the answer. All right. Reminds me of what happened in North Korea in the 90s. Uh, And part of that, I'm sure, is related to this whole thing because they couldn't get any aid from Russia as a result. Right. But let's move because we're in the Vladimir Putin era in Russia. Right. And of course, that's the beginning of the George H.W. era in the United States. What, what did he do to expand the era? W, not in with the, an H. Yeah, though. yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah. So, so W. Bush comes in and on, I don't think he had much of a Russia policy for the first half of his first year. 
But after September 11th, Vladimir Putin was the first president to call him and say, I'm your humble servant, man, whatever you want. You want to invade Afghanistan? You can not just use my airspace, the northern route, but I'll give you bases in Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. I'll call those guys after you and tell them and let them know the news that their bases are now going to be open to you. That's a pretty nice thing for a Russian president <laughs> to do. Remember now, it was America that was switching sides in the Afghan war, not Russia, right? So made sense for him to do that. So, but just three months later in December, still 2001, December 2001, Bush tears up the anti-ballistic missile treaty. Now, this was a treaty that Ike Eisenhower had signed, I believe. And it said that we wouldn't make anti-missile systems. And because it's just an escalatory thing. They're just going to have to make more missiles. If you make anti-missile missiles, they'll just make more missiles and to overwhelm your defenses and whatever. There's no point in anyway. It's just a brinksmanship game anyway. So let's just not go down that road. That was the idea behind it. Well, for Bush and the Republicans, the idea was money. Who cares if it works? What matters is we can tax Jimmy and we'll call it missile defense, whatever you need, you know? And so that was what it was all about. It was totally a boondoggle. And at one point, there was even an article in the New York Times where a guy said, look, I worked on missile defense and I got to say, we were ripping y'all off the whole time. It's just a racket. It doesn't work. It can't work. I guess you could, if you spent, you know, $10 trillion, maybe we could figure it out. But otherwise... You can't hit a bullet with a bullet, not without rigging the test. It's all fake. It doesn't work. And the only real way to take out incoming ICBMs is with H-bombs in space. Mm. Anything less than that, forget about it. You're going to hit an ice-cold rocket in space with a heat-seeking missile, really? And it's going like 7,000 miles an hour or whatever it is? Forget it. Mm. So the whole thing was a boondoggle anyway. But they tore up that treaty. Now there's major consequences from that. The first one is that Bush started this project that Obama and Trump continued to put these anti-ballistic missile missiles in Poland and Romania and radars in the Czech Republic. Now, when they installed these things, they claim that they're for shooting down incoming missiles from Iran or North Korea. But just look at a map, dude. Iran ain't <laughs> nowhere near Poland and there ain't no rivalry between the two either. They're not coming into contact with each other. They're not messing with each other at all. And North Korea is now targeting America's allies in Eastern Europe. If we ever get into it with North Korea, they're going to hit Japan and Hawaii and America's West Coast, right? They're not hitting Eastern Europe. They're not going after Poland. But at the same time, W. Bush was right that it would make no sense for the Russians to believe that this is directed at them because this is a very small number of anti-missile missiles. And if the Russians were really going for it, we wouldn't have any hope of hitting enough of their missiles to even make a difference. He said that, and that's really true. But so what the hell is the point then? It's not for Iran. It ain't for North Korea. And if it's for Russia, it's not about shooting their rockets down. And that's where the Russians, I think, are suspicious and maybe have a point. That the real purpose is, well, there's two things. First is, it could be the beginning of an attempt to create a first strike capability to end mutually assured destruction and make it where we could start a war and take out enough of their nukes on the first shot that anything that they tried to launch on the second round, we would shoot down anything they had left. And so we could totally kick their ass and they would not be able to deter us 
they wouldn't be able to even hit us or maybe not with more than one or two or something like that. So from the Russian point of view, looks like they're working on a first strike capability. So that's dangerous. But then secondly, the MK-41 missile launchers that you use to launch those anti-ballistic missile missiles, those can also launch Tomahawk cruise missiles that can be tipped with hydrogen bombs. Now, I don't think they usually are. I think ever since the end of the Cold War, according to treaties, we don't put H-bombs on Tomahawks. But we could, and in the event of a war, we could. And I'm skipping ahead here, but of course, Donald Trump tore up the INF treaty that kept the one that Ronald Reagan signed in 1987 when he got the Pershings out of Germany. And they banned medium-range nuclear missiles from Europe. Trump tore that treaty up. So the Russians were already suspicious that maybe we'd cheat and use those launchers to set up offensive missiles there. But now they have even more reason to worry about that because of Trump tearing up the treaty that promises to keep those missiles out. So that was a major consequence there of doing that. And then the other thing, and oh, and, and we know now from 2018 that Putin gave a speech where he announced a whole new generation of Russian nuclear weapons that they've been secretly developing for the last 18 years, 17. And this includes a new heavy nuke missile that goes around the South Pole instead of the North Pole. So we can't even conceivably defend against it. We have no defenses pointed that way whatsoever. And it's a heavy enough rocket. It carries enough multiple independently targetable reentry vehicles that they could kill. One rocket could kill every city in Texas. It's enough warheads on one missile to kill El Paso and Austin and Dallas and Fort Worth and Corpus and San Antonio and Houston and Galveston and Port Arthur and all of us dead, all of us dead. And um, sorry if I left anyone out. There's a lot of cities in this state. <laughs> and then they announce a new nuclear powered and therefore silent nuclear torpedo. So one, one of these in San Francisco Bay you know, creates a radioactive tidal wave for the whole place, destroys the whole place, all, you know, all the entire Bay Area, not just San Francisco. They say nuclear-powered cruise missile that has essentially unlimited range could fly around the world 10 times and hit any target they want from any direction where no defense can shoot it down. And a hypersonic cruise missile, which means at least Mach 5, but they claim up to Mach 10, which means at warning time, if they launch one of these from a ship in the mid-Atlantic, warning time to Washington, D.C. is about five minutes to decide whether you're going to full-scale thermonuclear war or not instead of 30 to weigh your options or whatever it is to, to evacuate the leaders out of town before they panic and hit the button. And Putin said in that speech, he said, I told you to listen and you wouldn't listen, but I bet you can hear me now. Mm. Right, that was so a direct is, response to what Bush had done. Bush said, well, what are the Russians going to do about it? <laughs> well, what they're going to do about it is they're going to make a new heavy nuke that can kill every city in Texas. W. Bush is what they're going to do. So, so this is happening as part of the NATO expansion out, outward, right? Right. That Because Bush added Slovakia and Slovenia mm -hmm. and the Baltic states and, and some of the Balkans. No, maybe it was Obama that brought in the Balkans. Mm -hmm. But anyway, he, he did bring in even the Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, right on Russia's border. Mm -hmm. And he threatened in 2008, he promised in the Bucharest Declaration to bring Ukraine and Georgia into NATO as well. And you know, Around here, we say former Soviet Georgia, because otherwise people think you're talking about the state between Florida and South Carolina. 
And they go, what the hell is former Soviet Georgia? And then I go, well, you know the Caspian Sea? And they go, no. <laughs> and I go, well, it's between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, if you can find that. That's Georgia. We want to bring them into the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. <laughs> does that sound right to you? Of course it does. Sure. We're just spreading our Pax Americana, guys. We have a border dispute with Russia in the Southern <laughs> Caucasus Mountains. But don't worry. It's fine. It's part of the North That's Atlantic, right. I guess. Uh, and then so, it, and by the way, so that Bucharest Declaration came out in April of 2008. And just a couple of months later, the leader of Georgia, who had been installed in the color-coded revolution of 2003, the Rose Revolution, which is another major project of Clinton and Bush, especially Bush, mm. he tried to seize these uh, breakaway, well, there's two breakaway provinces of Georgia, Abkhazia and South Ossetia. Mm. And they were both protected by Russian peacekeepers under a deal brokered by our allies in the EU. So not Russian aggression, but the deal that was cut. Well, Georgia attacked South Ossetia and tried to take it back at the beginning of August 2008. And they killed Russian peacekeepers in the very first assault. So Putin said, oh, yeah, well, look at who you're messing with here, pal. And send his armored divisions under the Roki Tunnel that goes under the Caucasus Mountains. And the Russians rolled in and, of course, you know, beat the Georgians back and out of South Ossetian territory. They could have taken all of Georgia. They didn't. They moved into Georgia some way and then they pulled back to Ossetia where they helped to maintain the so-called independence of South Ossetia ever then. But clearly the South Ossetians in large majorities preferred to be under the domination of Russia to Georgia if it was up to them. And the, the Americans, of course, lied and pretended that Russia started the war but it was Georgia that did because we just said we wanted to bring him into NATO. And he'd been getting these kind of like wink, wink, nudge, nudge assurances that like, don't worry, I bet you could get away with it this summer, man. Go for it kind of thing. And he went for it. And then Bush left him high and dry. What was Bush going to do? And I'll tell you, this is reported by Ron Suskind. Is, and I can't remember the name of the other reporter, but there are two different reporters that had this story independently of each other. And that is that Dick Cheney said, we should hit the Russians. And we should shoot missiles into that Roki tunnel and collapse the tunnel and kill all the Russians in the tunnel coming out of the Caucasus Mountains. And W. Bush said to the cabinet, who else agrees with Vice that we ought to hit the Russians in Georgia? And nobody else's hand went up. <laughs> and Bush said, thanks a lot for your opinion there, Dick, but we're going to go ahead and not. So it was, I mean, look, Dick Cheney's one heartbeat away from the presidency at that time. He could have very well have been the president at any time. And was willing to make that call to go to war with Russia over Georgia. Not even over Georgia, which wasn't even at risk. Over South Ossetia that Georgia wanted back. Are you kidding me, dude? That's the kind of danger, you know. Again, Pax Americana, except that it has a frontier, this Pax of yours. <laughs> and that frontier is, can be a very uh, you know, unstable and suspicious and dangerous place. And the further you push it up to Russia's borders, the more dangerous that you make it. Right. And then the, one more thing. Mm -hmm. So then the color-coded revolution. Yeah, that's so now what this I wanted is, to yeah. get to. So this is really big. That, mm -hmm. um, And I can't even name them all. It started under Bill Clinton. They did Albania. They did Armenia. Not all of these worked, but they were at least attempts. They did Serbia in 2000, Georgia in 2003, 
the first time in Ukraine in the Orange Revolution of 2004. And then in 2005, they did the Tulip Revolution in Tajikistan. They did the Denim Revolution in Belarus, which failed. The Cedar Revolution in Lebanon, which failed. And on and on. I'm sorry. There's a whole list in there. It's in my speech at antiwar.com slash Scott. I have the whole list in there of these color-coded revolutions. And then under Obama, you remember the Green Revolution in Iran in 2009. Mm. And then the big one is the coup in 2014. It wasn't so much color-coded, mm. but it was the second time that America had overthrown the government of Ukraine in 10 years. Right, because so they let's kept, go back to the first one. Though. Sure. Yeah. They, they, kept on, they kept electing the wrong guy. So we had to keep <laughs> doing coups. But yeah, so the first time in the Orange Revolution, what happened was a guy named Leonid Kuchma, I think, was the president. And the election was between Yanukovych from the Party of Regions, which is the Russian-leaning party, and Yushchenko. They're both Victor. Victor Yanukovych and Victor Yushchenko. And what happened was Yanukovych won the election. But the CIA, NED, you know, American and allied freakout was on. So, you know, all the George Soros and Pierre Omidyar funded think tanks and everything, you know, put all the, or I don't know, Omidyar, that was later. Mm -hmm. Certainly the Soros funded think tanks and all that uh, supported. It was, you know, it was, again, color coded. Somehow someone afforded that they just have all these huge orange banners everywhere <laughs> and they have these giant TV screens and they've got, somebody's paying to keep everybody fed and warm and and porta potties, you know, regularly serviced and whatever to keep the thing going out in the streets the whole time. It's all American money mm. behind the whole thing. And essentially, they canceled the election. What happened was the guy claimed that the FSB had poisoned his soup and he had these weird bumps all over his face. Mm. And it turned out that was a hoax. And you can read Justin Romando about this at antiwar.com. There was a Swiss doctor named Lothar Wick. I do have a pretty good memory for some things I read a long time ago. And Lothar Wick totally debunked the idea that this guy had been poisoned by whatever. I, I'm sorry, I forget the kind of poison, dioxin poisoning or whatever that they said that the Russians had given him and said that there's totally other explanations for what had happened to this guy's face. But essentially he had this weird breakout of this weird rash on his face. They go, ah, oh, the, the Russians tried to murder him. So we have to hold the election again. And then of course they made sure that their guy won that time. And of course his presidency was a disaster because he was so corrupt and had all of his partners in power were also completely corrupt. And so he was out almost immediately and had, I, if I remember this right, he had to pass authority over to this lady they call the gas princess, Yulia Timoshenko, who she's like pretty. She's always got the Princess Leia from Bespin hairstyle going on with the, the braid in the back and then the big loop things. And then I think she is the one who was in power at the time, I think she's the one who lost the election to Yanukovych in 2010. I'm sorry, I'd have to go back on that. I know at one point, she started really leaning toward the Russians and away from the Americans, and the Americans were pissed off at her for that. So anyway, Yanukovych, the same guy that they overthrew or prevented from taking power in 2004, is the same guy who wins the election of 2010, verified by the uh, uh, European Union to be a fair vote. And he's the same guy they overthrow in 2014. <laughs> but so when they do this in 2004, I mean, essentially they got away with it. The Russians didn't really do anything about it at that time, but it certainly, you know, made it clear the Americans intent for what to, what they wanted to do with Ukraine. I mean, we're talking about East of what we ever used to call Eastern Europe, mm. right? There's like, I'm sorry, my, 
the map in my head is not perfect, but there's like Hungary mm -hmm. and then Slovakia and then Romania and then Ukraine. Like this is, the, we used to call it the Ukraine. Mm. And the idea was it's a region of Russia. Mm. It's like the Midwest mm -hmm. means, you know, Ohio and Nebraska. You know, so uh, this is absolutely way, way far east of, of, you know, even the first two rounds of NATO expansion here to get that far into But, it. but this poor guy keeps getting, he gets elected. I don't know how poor it. he is. <laughs> <laughs> but then he gets elected in 2010. And then 2014, they overthrow him again. They overthrow yeah. him again. So right. he's a democratically elected person that's Russia leaning. Right. And in fact, not even there. He was actually trying very hard to tread like a neutralist path because mm. he was trying to be very careful of the Americans and the Russians. So here's the thing. You remember the name Paul Manafort. He was the guy that Donald Trump hired to be his first campaign or second campaign manager in 2016. And this caused a huge freak out because... Manafort is essentially he's a real scumbag and a lobbyist for foreign dictators a lot of the time. And he was very close with Yanukovych. And so the Democrats narrative was that's all you need to know. Manafort is friends with Russia's man in Ukraine. And that proves that he is Putin's controller of Trump. But the reality is that Manafort was pressuring Yanukovych to lean to the West. If anything, he was CIA or at least was serving American interests there in trying to pressure Yanukovych to lean toward the EU and lean toward the United States and away from Russia. So he wasn't serving Russian interests at all. He's serving American interests there. So I'm trying to think if there's anything really important left in W. Bush before we move on. I think we covered W. We, Bush we, we could go well to there. Obama and the yeah, actual 2014 okay. yeah. Yeah, so, thing. Yeah, so, so what happens is He's supposed to sign a trade deal with the EU in November of 2013. And I think that this was a setup. I don't know for sure what happened here, but he went to sign the deal and they added all these new restrictions to it. They said, oh, if you want to sign a deal with the EU, you can't sign one with the Russians and you have to raise your social security age and all this like austerity measures on a very poor country, very poor people. And you have to take, if I remember it right, you have to take a $15 billion loan, which means we get to gangsterize you out of your wheat, give it to Archer Daniels Midland after you can't pay your loan, you know, just all that economic hitman stuff. So Yanukovych says, Chase, I feel like a bride who just showed up at my wedding to be greeted with a prenuptial agreement. <laughs> and now I'm not really in the mood. I'm not so sure I even want to get with you after all. Mm. Right? So he goes home. He doesn't sign the deal and he goes home. And... So then that starts the big protest movement in the Maidan, which we know was financed by This is Soros. 2013? This is, yeah, the end of 2013. And this is when Russia comes into the Ukraine at some point or something like that? You're though? skipping ahead. Yeah, yeah. So, so the protest movement breaks out in November and December. And you have John McCain and uh, Chris Murphy and Lindsey Graham. I don't know if Lindsey Graham was there. You have John McCain and Chris Murphy and Victoria Newland, who is the Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs, all showing up and passing out sandwiches and cookies and going up on stage and doing presentations. And you can see pictures if you type in John McCain Maidan and you see there he is standing with Oleg Tannebach, the Nazi. If you just Google Tannebach's name, you'll see there he is with the Hitler salute and the big SS lightning bolts behind him. And this is these are the guys that the Americans were palling around there and encouraging to do this coup. 
So they built up this protest movement. Again, who's paying to keep all these people fed, to keep them entertained? They have rock concerts going on the whole time. Mm. You know, they got big screen TVs and everything. It's cold as hell in the winter in Ukraine. Somebody's keeping them warm with plenty of, uh, you know, hydrocarbon fuel to keep their heaters going, to keep them fed, to keep their porta potties serviced. And the whole thing is obviously a put on by foreign powers to do this. And there was heavy involvement of Nazis. And when I say Nazis, I don't mean Nazis as in like everybody's a Nazi who I don't like <laughs> is a Nazi. I mean, these guys are the proud. In fact, I don't even mean neo-Nazis like some kind of shirtless redneck out in the woods in Alabama who's like, mm -hmm. you know, burning a cross for no one, right? These guys are literally the proud grandsons and great-grandsons of the Galatian SS who perpetrated the Holocaust for Hitler in World War II. They're the proud worshipers of this guy. Stepan Bandera is like their leader, their ideological leading light and who served Hitler in the Galatian SS. And these guys, they're from their different gangs are called right sector, Svoboda, C-14 and Azov. And are there's the prominent ones. There are others too. ADAR, I think is one of them, A-I-D-A-R. And they are exactly what you would think of as you know, a, a bunch of black shirt, you know, street tough Nazis. And they essentially, the way that they did the coup, and this is essentially proven now, I think. It's, there's, at the very least, there's very strong reason to believe that it was the right sector themselves who hired snipers who got up there and started shooting people in the crowd on the night of February the 20th of 2014. And that was what like drove the crowd into a frenzy and drove the politics up to a real tipping point. And then the Europeans helped the Americans strong arm the uh, president Yanukovych into signing a deal that promised new elections in May or maybe even March. I think it was May. Um, and he would pull back his police forces because they were accused of doing the sniping, of course, which was a false flag attack. But he agreed. And he pulled his police forces back and agreed to new elections. Well, the rioters in the street, they didn't abide by the deal and go home. They just seized all the government buildings now that the cops weren't there to stop them anymore. And they just took over the capital city, all the government buildings. So Yanukovych and his people fled and the coup was accomplished. George Friedman from Stratfor in an interview with Commerçant called it the most obvious coup in world history. They call it a revolution. Come on, man. This is the CIA and the NED. And they used a bunch of Hitler-loving Nazis to do it. And then here's the thing about this, which is so interesting, is that we knew exactly what was going to happen two weeks before it happened. And they got caught red-handed planning it. And then they did it anyway. <laughs> it was Robert Kagan's wife, Victoria Newland. Robert Kagan is one of the leading theoreticians of the American neoconservative movement. He's the co-author of Toward a Neo-Reaganite Foreign Policy with Bill Kristol in 1996. A foundational document, a co-founder of the Project for a New American Century, major ringleader in getting us into Iraq War II. And anyway, Victoria Newland was the Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs or something like that, essentially ambassador to the EU kind of a job. And the Russians, presumably, or maybe I guess Yanukovych's intelligence service, intercepted a phone call between her and Jeffrey Pyatt, the ambassador to Ukraine. And they posted it on YouTube on February, I think, 10th or 2nd even. No, no, it was like the 10th. It was about two weeks before the coup. 
And you can go and the original file is on there right now. You can go and listen to it. And people might remember it was famously the F the EU phone call where Victoria Newland was saying, well, F the EU. And according to CNN, the only thing important about that phone call is that a diplomat used a bad word in a private conversation. <laughs> and you don't need to know anything about why she was saying F the EU. Well, she was saying F the EU because they didn't want to do a coup. They were taking their sweet time and they were trying to come up with compromises that maybe we can find a way to work this out. And the Americans didn't want to work this out. They wanted a coup d'etat. So F the EU, we'll push the Germans out of the way and we're going to get Robert Sari from the UN to come in here and he's going to help us glue it. And we're going to put this thing together. And I don't want Vitaly Klitschko, the boxer, in government. He's not ready. He doesn't know enough yet. He wants in government. We've got to keep him out. What we're going to do, we're going to have him do public relations on the outside. And I want Oleg Tannebach, the Nazi with the Hitler salute and the SS lightning bolts. I want Tannebach to be talking with Klitschko two or three times a week to get him up to speed to do the PR. But Yats is the guy, Arseny Yatsenyuk. Yats is the guy. We want him to be prime minister. And he's going to be the one. He's the one who's got the experience to do the thing and the stuff and the all that we want as we put this thing together. Well, guess what? Two weeks later, they do a bloody street putsch and they install Arseny Yatsenyuk <laughs> to be the new prime minister of Ukraine. And they keep Klitschko on the outside where Tannebach is obviously his handler and educator and whatever. And the whole thing goes on exactly as she talks about, as she dictates in the phone call. And then they, they were caught red-handed. They went ahead and did it anyway. And there was a clip of Ron Paul back then on Fox News where they go, Ron Paul, how come you keep saying there's a coup going on in Ukraine? He goes, there is a coup going on in Ukraine. The whole thing will probably be done in a couple of days. That was on the 20th. On the 22nd, it was over. <laughs> you know? And then the new coup junta, the first thing they do is they outlaw Russian as a second language. Well, sorry. That's like outlawing Mexican as, or uh, Spanish as a second language in Texas. Where like, you know, you have Spanish on all the government documents and all of this kind of thing. You have Spanish taught in schools and that kind of thing. It's even worse than that. I mean, the, with the, the history here. And so they're essentially declaring full-scale culture war mm. with national government power against the pro-Russian, not even pro-Russian, but just the Russian-speaking population of the country. And then three former presidents signed a letter demanding, now is our chance to kick the Russians out of the Sevastopol naval base on the Crimean Peninsula. Only then did Vladimir Putin order his sailors and Marines to leave their base and seize the Crimean Peninsula. Now, a lot of people think that there was a bloody war there and that they killed a bunch of people. They didn't kill anybody. The story is that six people were killed in total and none of them can be directly attributed to Russian sailors or Marines even doing the shooting. It was like local militias had a couple of tiny skirmishes. Six people killed total. And I think two of them Ukrainian soldiers, something like that. So as far as a war and a coup de main, that's pretty good. You know, walk right in, you know, like Hitler taking over Austria without firing a shot kind of thing. Could have been a lot worse. And then they held a plebiscite and you could say they had a gun to their head, but not really because the Germans came and did polling results and verified it, that it was correct. That super duper majorities of the people of Crimea voted to join Russia. More than 80% of the people voted to join Russia. And it's the population there is about 60% Russian, 15% Tatar, and then 
15% Ukrainian. That add up right? Something like that. But super majority Russian population there. And then there was this terrible massacre in Odessa where these uh, you know, pro-Russian leaning people were protesting at the trade union building and a bunch of these Nazis came and burned them to death. You know, burned the building with them inside and killed a bunch of them. I don't know, 14, 15 of them or something. It's a real massacre. And that really helped inflame opinion. There was also a bus that was attacked by some Nazis, I think, that had some Crimean, uh, Crimean you know, Russian uh, Crimeans in it. And that really inflamed opinion. So in the far east of Ukraine, this is still just right in the aftermath of the coup, okay? March, April, 2014. In the far east of the country, the people who are very strongly pro-Russian leaning seized the government buildings in Donetsk and Luhansk, which are these two provinces, essentially they call the Donbass region. Uh, and they essentially said, well, if you guys can occupy government buildings and do a violent coup and overthrow our democratically elected leader, we can sure as hell occupy government buildings and refuse to accept your authority over us. Screw you. We declare independence. And then Kiev immediately declared a war on terrorism and invaded the east of their own country. Launched this massive bloody war that killed something like 15,000 people. And the absolute, like super duper, like something like 80 something percent majority of those killed were the people on the Russian side, civilians and fighters on the separatist side being attacked by their own government. Well, not really their own government, the coup d'etat illegal junta that had overthrown their elected government and taken its place. They call it a democracy now. Yeah, sure. They hold regular elections all the time. That'd be just like if in America we held regular elections all the time, except the Californians and the Oregonians and the Washingtonians aren't allowed to vote in the thing, right? But otherwise, it's a free and fair election. We're just excluding a few 10 million people from the thing. You know, that was basically the deal. And so that was what started this bloody war. Now, in 2015, I think the first one was in 2014, and the second was in 2015. But what happened was Angela Merkel from Germany and Francois Holland from France, I think it was Francois, whatever his name was, Holland, they said, enough of this. This is horrible. And it's in Europe, not far away on the other side of some mountain ranges and things like we have to take care of this right now. And so they came to America. I think this is before the second deal. Angela Merkel came to Washington, D.C. just to tell Obama to his face, we are going to go over there and end this war right now. And he said, geez, okay, lady, if you say so, fine. And then she went over there and sat down with Putin and they hashed this out. And the deal was called Minsk II. And the deal was it was supposed to be a ceasefire in the East, which they never really got. It was so-called low-level fighting ever since then, which means mortar shells going off and people being exploded to death. It ain't that low-level fighting. It's just in overall quantity, the numbers were much lower. And they were supposed to get a whole new level of legal autonomy and respect from the central government in Kiev and, and new veto power over the foreign policy decisions in Kiev. So that deal was never really implemented. It led to an official ceasefire and the end of the major hostilities. There's still been ongoing hostilities ever since then. And guess who's leading the fight? It's the Nazis. It's the Azov Battalion. And they were over there. Um, you know, their leader says that we're here to save the white race from the Semite-led Untermenschen. These guys are Nazis. Man. And that's why they have a grudge against the Russians. Because they're Nazis. And so 
they're the ones who've been doing the bulk of the fighting over there and even Amnesty International, which most of the time is just a branch of the U.S. State Department, says that they torture people and murder people and disappear people and it's a, mm. a, an unending parade of war crimes there for eight years straight. Now, so during all of this, essentially, put your shoe on the other foot for a minute and pretend that we lost the Cold War the Soviet Union had expanded the Warsaw Pact to include all of Western Europe. And then they started moving into Latin America. And then they do a coup in Ottawa twice in 10 years. <laughs> when the first one doesn't work out quite right, they do it again. And they hire a bunch of Hitler-loving Nazis to overthrow the government of Canada. And then as soon as they do, they threaten to kick America out of our naval bases in Alaska. And then they launch a war on terrorism against the people of Vancouver, British Columbia, who refuse to accept the rule of the new Nazi junta. What do you think America would do then? You think we'd wait eight years of slaughtering Vancouverians before America invaded Canada? The truth is, America would go to full-scale nuclear war with Russia before we let them even begin to try to dominate Canada and Mexico in the way that we are doing to Ukraine. And you look at all these people right now, well, why can't Ukraine choose to ally with whoever they want? Not one person saying that right now would honestly answer that, yes, it would be just fine then if Canada decided to get into Russia's sphere of military influence and if Mexico decided to run off with the Chinese. No one thinks that. No one. America would go to war. Sorry, but Mexico is actually not free to decide which alliance they want to be in and which one they don't. Are they? No, they are not. And nor is Ukraine. And nor should they be. And nor should any American deceive themselves to you know, lie to themselves and put themselves in such a position to advocate a policy that is suicidal for the Ukrainians in picking this fight for them in the way that the United States has done. And going back to the American graybeards who told you so 30 years ago, they told you so 30 years ago. And ever since then, they told you so. Again, not antiwar.com and Cato and Ron Paul and Pat Buchanan, but, and, and not Code Pink, but the graybeards from the Council on Foreign Relations are the ones who said that this is what was going to happen. And at the same time, all the way through, in 2004 and in 2007 and in 2008 and Lord knows in 2014 and 15, Vladimir Putin has said in the plainest Russian over and over and over again, listen, you guys, I have serious security concerns. You are making me very concerned about them. Do you read me? Over and over and over, he talks like this. Our American partners, he calls us. Our American partners. Geez, sometimes it's hard to get them to listen. But we keep trying to tell them. Now, in 2008, when Condoleezza Rice was working on the, the uh, Bucharest Declaration and the idea of bringing Ukraine and Georgia into NATO, our current, well, Biden's current CIA director, William Burns, at that time was the ambassador to Russia. I'm trying to like this guy because I'm like, man, if you have to have a head of the CIA, I prefer that he's like a, a career foreign service officer 
Because the State Department are really bad guys. Don't get me wrong. But at least he doesn't come straight from big business or straight from, you know, or like banking <laughs> on Wall Street, right? Or like he doesn't come, he's not Mike Pompeo, the right-wing hawk from the Congress, who's just you know, Israel's servant or something like that. He's a State Department weenie in a Brooks Brothers suit, you know, okay. Mm -hmm. So he, um, and I'll get back to him in a minute when we talk about Biden years here and what the current war. But in 2008, he was the ambassador to Russia and he wrote a memo to Condoleezza Rice that's at WikiLeaks. It's called Nyet Means Nyet. <laughs> and in there, He's talking with Sergey Lavrov. So this is a memo back to Condoleezza Rice about, hi, I met with Sergey Lavrov today, boss. And this is what we talked about. And what we talked about was Sergey Lavrov told me to tell you, man, they are not playing. And Sergey Lavrov is a very polite diplomat, but it is not hard at all to read between the lines of the, his language in that thing. He is saying, if you bring, if you persist in this effort to bring Ukraine into NATO, we will invade and conquer it. We absolutely can not allow you to bring this nation on our border in our former historic territory, just a couple of hundred miles from our capital city into your military alliance. And he's very polite. And he says, listen, I believe you when you tell me that this is really not directed toward Russia. And frankly, I don't even believe that this is Russia's sphere of influence. That's anachronistic. And I recognize that America and the EU, you have interests in Ukraine. Fine. But homeboy, military alliance? Come on now. Look at this situation that you're putting me in. This could cause a civil war inside Ukraine. And then what am I supposed to do? This is a decision we don't want to have to make to intervene in Ukraine. This is the position you're putting us in. Burns titles this, Nyet means Nyet. Like that's, I'm sorry, but that just should have been good enough for the Americans to say, you know what? Fine. We got the Baltic states. That's pretty far east. That's right on Russia's border too. Maybe Ukraine is pushing it too far. Well, hey, four months after Burns wrote her that memo, three months after Burns wrote her that memo, they announced the Bucharest declaration that they wanted to bring Ukraine in. And I, I was just reminded yesterday from a, listening to my old interview of John Mearsheimer from 2014 that Bush was determined to bring Ukraine and Georgia into NATO then in 08, but Germany stopped him and absolutely put their foot down as Mearsheimer uh, said it and prevented that from happening. So that was after the yet means yet memo that they just absolutely should have taken seriously. You read that thing and you're like, you know what? This is reasonable. On the part of the Russians. You don't have to take their side, but just be objective. Pretend you're Kang and Kodos in orbit. You just got here and you don't have a dog in this fight. And you're just looking at this. And you look at a map. And the Russians are going, look, we have these security concerns. <laughs> like, yeah, yes, fair enough, man. So now. Well, 2015, Donbass region. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So. And by the way, right during this time, 2014, in the fall of 2014, so about six months after the coup, Biden tells an Italian diplomat to the EU, the, head, the president of the European Commission, I forgot his name, Jose Barrera something. And Putin tells him, you know, I could be in Kiev in two weeks. Huh? Looks like he's going to be in Kiev in about two weeks here. 
Mm. And again, you know, this is, you, you think about, you know, I don't know, including myself. Mm. Americans can be kind of childish. There are other cultures in the world where once you reach the age of maturity, you kind of quit screwing around. Putin is not a very humorous sort of a fellow. Okay. He's like a throat slitten sociopath or psychopath. He's a very strong man, a right wing leader of, uh, and I don't mean physically strong. I mean, a strong man, like a dictator, not exactly a dictator. Cause he does stand for election from time to time, sort of kind of in a very rigged system, but it's, he's not exactly Saddam Hussein, but he's also nobody to be trifled with. It's a matter, you know, it's sort of like a guy at school who you don't really like, but you know he can fight and you respect that. You know what I mean? You don't, you don't step on that guy's toes because you know that he can knock your block off, you know? So maybe that's not the, the best kind of respect, but it's one kind of respect Mm. that you know what you these guys have some red lines mm. and that's it and you know my friend gareth porter wrote a book about vietnam it's called the perils of dominance and the point of that title and this the point of the book that the reason we got into the vietnam war was because the guys in charge of the war knew now they lie to the american people all damn day and night about it but they knew that america was a hundred times more powerful than russia and china could bind our economy and our military might, our nuclear missile capability, just put them to shame. So the idea in the early 60s, especially in the Kennedy years and the Johnson years there was, what the hell are they going to do about it? And what is this backwards caveman Ho Chi Minh going to do about it? His men fight in pajamas and sandals. And we're the mightiest technological empire the galaxy has ever seen. And so... The fact that Ho Chi Minh says he has a red line is meaningless to us. But guess who it wasn't meaningless to? Ho Chi Minh. And maybe if there had been someone else in the chair, they might have made a different decision. Like, we can't take the heavy bombing. We give up. But Ho Chi Minh said, I'm not giving up. You can carpet bomb my whole damn country. I will fight you to the last Vietnamese. We will not let white people rule sock puppet colonial governments on our shores ever again not anymore not while i'm alive let's squabble and the americans killed three million of them and they would not give in they won we lost we had to come home because they had a red line and even though we exploded three million of them that is for people keeping track half of a holocaust and, if, and it's 5 million if you throw in the Laotians and the Cambodians who were just caught in the middle of this thing. He still wouldn't give up because there was a principle at stake. Now, why is the book called The Perils of Dominance? Because these idiots in D.C. see how strong they are and they think that that's all that matters. They think that they can be a bully and that no matter what, the nerd is never going to haul off and bloody their nose. But anybody who's been to high school knows that's not how it works. You know, the nerd who knows he's going to lose the fight will still throw a punch at that bully if you really put him in a corner, you know? And that's it. So here we are. We put the Russians in this situation and act like, again, go back to the Canada analogy. If they tried this on us, we would go to nuclear war. 
We Jack Kennedy threatened to burn the entire world to the ground if they wouldn't get their missiles out of Cuba. Try me, Khrushchev. I'll burn the whole world to the ground, he said. Now, you think about how we would react if they were doing this in Canada. And yet our idea is that we can do this to them in Ukraine and they're just going to have to sit there and take it. And there's nothing they could or would ever do. What's Vladimir Putin going to do about it? But these are the same people who say he's the world's most dangerous psychopath. <laughs> he's not, you know, loving George W. Bush or Barack Obama, you know, with their calm, cool, patient wisdom. He's the most dangerous man in human history, they say. But we ought to be able to provoke him and provoke him and provoke him and provoke him and expect for him to never respond in any meaningful way at all. That just doesn't hold up. It just doesn't make sense at all. And now, as John Mearsheimer said, I'll quote him again. What was happening here was that even though Biden said, we're not going to bring Ukraine into NATO, and that really was dead. The Germans weren't going to let that happen. We were de facto bringing them into NATO. And we were integrating their military with our military, and we were arming them up, not just with rifles and anti-tank missiles, but with boats and all kinds of small arms and trucks and medical gear and radars and equipment, radio equipment of every kind turning their, you know, really professionalizing their army. For the last eight years, our rangers over there, training up their army, integrating their Nazi militias into their armed forces and using them against the people of the Donbass. Again, this, the war never stopped. It was ongoing this whole time. So now, last October, President Zelensky comes to America and tells Biden, hey man, I want to get back on track for this NATO membership here, buddy. And that seems to have been the last straw that made Putin begin building up his forces in Belarus and on the, on the border threatening to invade. Well, and he wasn't threatening to invade. He promised he wasn't going to invade. But at the same time, he started issuing demands. And his demands, I mean, what can you say, man? They're just fair. They're just reasonable. He said, listen, we want you to get back in the INF treaty. That's Ronald Reagan's treaty that the World's greatest villain, Donald Trump, just tore up two years ago. Why can't we agree on that? That should be fine. He said, we want a treaty that recognizes neutrality. We want neutrality in the Ukrainian constitution. You can't bring them into NATO. And we want an official declaration that you are going to no longer try to bring them into NATO and that they're going to no longer try to get into NATO. And the Americans go, oh, wah, you can't do that. That's closing the door. And one time we had a meeting where we wrote it down on a piece of paper that we have a policy that says an open door policy and no one can ever close the door. Well, if you hear Biden tell it, he had no intention of bringing Ukraine into NATO anyway. Again, he couldn't. The Germans wouldn't let him anyway. And the way he said it very blithely and believably was, come on, we're not going to do that at least in the next 10 years anyway. We're not even thinking about doing that. Certainly not in my terms in office. And he told Putin that on the phone. But he couldn't put it in writing because that would be closing the door. And then he also wanted a verification system for those dual use missile launchers in Romania and Poland. And Biden offered to give him those. And now, somewhat famously, me and a lot of other anti-war people thought that Biden wasn't going to do this. Now, I'm the same guy who's been quoting him saying I could be in Kiev in two weeks for the last eight years. But I thought that he wasn't going to do this because I made a stupid assumption that his CIA director, William Burns, was going to help him navigate this and that we were going to give in enough to appease that, okay, Biden won't give him 
a, a treaty in writing promising neutrality for Ukraine, fine. But you can at least give them a good handshake and a believable one. And that should be good enough, this kind of thing. Now I think that the reason I got that wrong more than anything else is because, and I'm really embarrassed to say this, after all we've been through for 20 years and the books I've written about these monsters and everything else, I think I really just wasn't presuming the worst about them. I thought, as I just said, I thought William Burns was going to say to Biden, well, you know, this is kind of my fault and it's kind of your fault. Oh, I, I, I skipped the part from the Victoria Newland phone call where she says, I just talked with Jake Sullivan, who at that time was vice president, Joe Biden's national security advisor, who is currently president, Joe Biden's national security advisor. I just talked with Jake Sullivan and he says that Biden is ready and willing and we're going to have him get on a conference call with the participants tomorrow to give them an attaboy and get the deets to stick. So this was, as they say, Joe Biden held the Ukraine brief in the Obama White House. This was delegated to him to handle. And this is part of why his son famously got that deal at Burisma <laughs> Gas Company was because Burisma was close with the government that Biden had just overthrown. They were tight with Yanukovych. So they were afraid that the new government was going to persecute them and tax them, right? So what do they do? Did they hire Arseny Yatsenyuk's brother? Nope. They hired Vice President <laughs> Biden's son. Because they heard, presumably, they heard on the same phone call as us that Vice President Biden is running this operation. And we heard that his son likes to come around and collect checks. So this is a way that we could protect ourselves is by hiring him. That's how he got that job. And by the way, the fact checkers are just wrong that Biden was not trying to fire this prosecutor for investigating his son's company. He admitted that at the Council on Foreign Relations on video. I told them, you better fire this attorney general or you don't get your billion dollars. And then SOB, he says, what do you know? An hour later, they fired him and I got on the plane and left and they got their billion dollars. And then but the fact checkers say, no, -uh, because that all Biden was concerned about was corruption, N not like Barisma and his son's <laughs> corruption. That's totally different. There's no corruption there. Um, and, and in fact, this prosecutor had already dropped the Barisma case. It was dormant. So there was nothing to protect his son's company from. Well, that's not true. And Matt Taibbi, who speaks Russian and knows a thing or two about actually doing journalism and not just repeating what he heard in the post, he went and did a bunch of work on this. And he showed that actually there were multiple investigations of, of Burisma going on at that time, many of which were still quite active. And so that debunking is debunked. It was clear <laughs> that Biden was getting, Biden, Vice President Biden was strong arming the government of Ukraine that he had installed in power, that they better fire their attorney general who was investigating the company that had hired his son for a million dollars a year to do nothing. And they say, oh no, Biden was trying to fight corruption. And he was mad at that prosecutor for being corrupt. That's that story there. So when Trump was saying, hey, I want that case reopened, he wasn't doing the wrong thing. <laughs> that, that was absolutely the right thing to do. They should have reopened that investigation. They should have never closed it. Um, and it's amazing to, to imagine that he was actually, literally, he was impeached for holding up an arms deal to Ukraine, which after Obama overthrew the government there, he was afraid to arm them. 
They're a bunch of Nazis in their military, man. It's scary over there. Well, Trump comes in. Trump starts arming them. So Obama was afraid to arm the guys that he put in power. Trump starts arming them, but then he holds up an arms deal for a week and a half, and they impeach him for that. And it was because he was trying to get their government to do their job and actually prosecute corruption, which included his son. Um, it was just really incredible. And by the way, he spent all that money, a million dollars, on coke and whores while he's cheating on his wife and his dead brother's widow mm. at the same time. Wow. Lots of fun. Uh, yeah, lots of fun. So, so let's get to the present day trying try yeah. to oh, sort so of wrap Trump. This up. Wait, wait, yeah. Trump here. So Trump comes in and they lie and they frame him for treason with Russia, none of which was true. Mm. All of Russiagate was a hoax. It was invented by the Democrats and the FBI mm. and the CIA went along with it. The Russian hacking of the DNC was fake. Never happened. They have no chain of custody to Julian Assange's WikiLeaks. And he swore over and over again, believably, I did not get this stuff from the Russians, period. Mm. That was made up. Guess who hired CrowdStrike? The guys that told that lie. The same lawyers that hired Michael Steele to write the Steele dossier full of all the lies about the P-tape and everything else. The whole thing all traces back to Hillary and, and the FBI, her cooperation with the FBI and CIA and framing them up. So then you go down the entire list of all the accusations of Russiagate, and there were a million of them. None of them were true. You know, Michael Flynn on the, on the phone with the ambassador, he wasn't taking orders from the Russian ambassador or promising he would lift American sanctions. He was asking a favor of the Russians on behalf of Israel that they would veto a UN resolution condemning Israel for their occupation in the West Bank. And they told him to go to hell. Doesn't sound like they were working for him or he was working for them at all. Um, the Trump Tower meeting, no one there had any connection to Russian intelligence whatsoever. There's just mm. nothing happened there. Jeff Sessions met the senator, met with the Russian ambassador in his Senate office in front of all of his staff who were all retired army officers, mm. right? And met him and shook his hand at a public speech in front of everybody on camera. Nothing to it. George Papadopoulos said supposedly that he knew that the Russians had all this dirt on Hillary Clinton, that they had hacked her emails where the whole thing was made up. And we know now that the FBI and the CIA worked together to frame up Papadopoulos in the first place to get him to say that and then set him up. And the guy he said it to also worked for them was an MI6 agent and then went blabbing about it to create the predicate for the thing to start the investigation. Carter Page, who they smeared as a Russian agent and Trump's handler. He was in the Steele dossier. This is completely crazy. The Steele dossier claims that the Russians promised Carter Page a 19% ownership stake in Gazprom, the massive Russian government-owned oil company, if he would just seize control of America's sanctions policy and lift all the sanctions on Russia. I mean, that's like me promising you a 19% ownership stake in Gazprom if only you, Jimmy, will seize control of America's sanctions policy and lift all the sanctions on Russia. That's how believable that lie is. This is the dumbest thing I ever heard in my life. And it turned out, remember now, for years and years, there are endless leaks from the FBI and the CIA the whole time during that investigation trying to make us believe it was all true. And then it turned out that Carter Page was a loyal, patriotic CIA asset. And every time he went to Russia and met with an important businessman or government official of any kind, he would immediately come back to the, to the CIA and brief them and tell them everything. Mm. And so there's actually an FBI lawyer was convicted and got a slap on the wrist 
for censoring that information from the CIA out of their application to get a Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act warrant on an American. That's important because the Bill of Rights says you have to have probable cause to believe that you'll find evidence of a crime. But under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, if we can pretend that we have a reasonable belief, not a probable cause, mm -hmm. but a reasonable belief that you are an agent of a foreign power, then it doesn't matter if there's any criminal law being violated at all. We don't need a criminal predicate. We can just surveil you as a foreign intelligence asset and we can surveil anyone you talk to and anyone they talk to. Mm. And so they could spy on the whole Trump campaign by <laughs> pretending to believe that Carter Page was a traitor when they knew, and we can prove they knew he was a patriot and a loyal asset of the CIA. And on and on and on and on. That whole thing was BS. And they kept the investigation going for three years, just as they put it. The FBI told CNN, well, if we can't get rid of him through the 25th Amendment, at least we can rein him in, which meant we can prevent Donald Trump from fixing America's Russia policy. We can keep the Cold War going and we'll prevent him from ending it. And it worked because we are just talking about Donald Trump here. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't have the intellect or the wherewithal. He hired all hawks and horrible men to be his national security cabinet, right? And so either... Well, first of all, we know there's at least one quote from Trump Jr. saying, well, we're giving all these arms to Ukraine, so you can't call us Russian traitors now. Mm. So in other words, it worked, right? Like it was directly <laughs> like they jerked their chain. And that was like part of the reason they had such a pro-Ukraine policy was to prove that they weren't so pro-Russia <laughs> because that was the accusation. So it just worked. And then it's also the case that during Trump, he added two more states to NATO, Montenegro and Northern Macedonia. Mm. And I don't know if he even knew about this. If he, <laughs> either he was a hawk or the Pentagon was just on autopilot doing whatever they want. But the American naval fleet is constantly harassing the Russians in the Black Sea and in the Baltic Sea. Mm. I mean, imagine the Russians constantly off of the American East Coast or in our Gulf of Mexico. Mm. And we're flying, and Trump is flying our long-range bombers. Biden continued this, even escalated this flying our long-range bombers right up to 12 and a half miles, 13 miles off of their shores to the very edge of their airspace to test. I mean, these are our heavy nuclear bombers to test their radars and their air defenses and so forth, constantly harassing them like that. Again, imagine the Russians are constantly flying heavy bombers off the coast of California to test our reactions and our radars and our air defenses and so forth like this. And we just think we can just do this if they did that to us, that would be an outrage. But we can just do this to them and they just better take it. And of course, he also massively, as I was saying, uh, increased arms to Ukraine, even if the Democrats impeached him for holding that up for a week and a half. <laughs> and in fact, that Zelensky said, geez, we didn't even know the arms were held up. Like everything was still on schedule. If anything was held up, it was on your end, but it didn't even flow. The holdup wasn't even long enough that we even noticed it on our side. <laughs> and they impeached him for that. They impeached Andrew Johnson for firing his cabinet. And they impeached Bill Clinton for quite literally lying under oath in, federal, in front of a federal grand jury, even though it was about a trivial issue. And they impeached Donald Trump for temporarily holding up an arms deal to a Nazi-infested armed forces 6,000, 7,000 miles east of here. Whatever it is. Just incredible. And then, so when Biden came in, the one good thing he did was he saved the New START Treaty. Trump had promised to let it expire. And he had also, um, he tore up the INF Treaty, as I said, and he also tore up the Open Skies Treaty that lets our 
air forces fly over each other's countries so that we can reassure each other that the other side is not mobilizing for war. And that was Ike Eisenhower's idea. And Trump tore that up. And by the way, as soon as Biden was sworn in, Putin said, hey, let's restore these two treaties. And Biden said, no. Mm. They figure they have so many satellites that they have the advantage in surveilling the Russians. Why should we let the Russians surveil us? But the answer is to reassure them that we're not mobilizing for nuclear war, man, so that they stay cool instead of hot. Okay, that's what we want. But they let that expire. But he did save the New START Treaty, and the New START Treaty is the last outstanding treaty limiting overall numbers of thermonuclear weapons, strategic nuclear weapons. So Donald Trump had promised to let that expire. And we could be in an arms race back up into the tens of thousands right now if he'd done that. So that's actually heroic on Biden's part. But every other thing that he's done in regard to this question has just been absolutely horrible. So back to the current crisis here, where in last fall, Zelensky said, hey, what up on getting us back in, NATO, getting us into NATO here like we talked about? And so that seemed to be the provocation that led to the buildup. And then the last straw, I think, was that Zelensky in February at the Munich Security Conference said, eh, maybe we'll go ahead and get nuclear weapons. That's paraphrasing, but he was saying, let's get out of the deal where we promised never to get nukes. Now, here's the thing about that, Jimmy. America doesn't pass out nuclear weapons to other countries. <laughs> Except LBJ let the Israelis steal a bunch of nuclear weapons material. But other than that, we don't pass out A-bombs. And neither do our allies. And so if Ukraine was ever to get atom bombs, they would have to make them themselves. And they can't do that without the Russians bombing their attempt off the face of the earth before they ever got anywhere near it. The same situation as us in Iran right now, right? If they tried to make nukes, we would bomb their facilities to the point that they couldn't. So they don't even try it and then we don't bomb them. And so we have our status quo, you know? So why would he say that then? If he knows nobody's going to hand him one and that he couldn't possibly manufacture a deterrent in time to use it as a deterrent, it's a provocation. Now I'm speculating here, but I think that they put him up to it and they made him do it. And then, and I think they were jerking Vladimir Putin's chain. And I think old wily KGB agent Putin fell for it, dude. I think now that they wanted this to happen. And that's one of the reasons is it's, I admit this is speculation. You know, I don't, I, when I'm making a claim about something that happened, I hope you could tell that I always try to make the difference between what I know is true and what I'm speculating might be a possibility here. But it really looks to me like they wanted this to happen, man, because first of all, you have that level of provocation. What did Putin say in his speech when he declared war? He goes, now these guys want to make nukes, weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> I don't think so. We're going in. This is a security threat. He also paraphrased Bill Clinton and Barack Obama claiming that there's a genocide against the people of the Donbass. Well, that's what Bill Clinton claimed in Kosovo. And that's what Barack Obama claimed in Libya as their excuses to start that war, those wars. So he's clearly, you know, mocking them and their excuses. But so the, my thing is this though, that's checkers. The CIA got him. They're poking him in the chest and they got him to do something stupid. And um, by the way, they also tried to overthrow the government of Belarus last year. You might remember the, the wife, the pretty wife of the guy that went to jail. They were trying to put her in there and the whole thing failed. It's another attempt to take away. And Belarus, again, it's probably even more important of a country to Russia than Ukraine is. 
trying to take that away from them is just absolutely intolerable. In fact, I asked this real expert, Lyle Goldstein from the Naval War College on my show, hey man, what do you think changed? Because Putin could have taken the Donbass region anytime in the last eight years and he didn't do it. They actually voted in 2015 to join Russia and he told them no. So what do you think changed? And Lyle Goldstein says, I think it was the, the attempted coup in Belarus last year. And that it wasn't just Putin. It was all of Moscow essentially like threw up their hands. These Americans are just relentless. They'll stop at nothing. I mean, even in the middle of this buildup, it sure looks like, we don't know this for certain, but it sure looks like the Americans and their friends tried to overthrow the government of Kazakhstan just in January mm. while the Russians are building up on Ukraine's border. The Americans still will not stop at their provocations. I mean, this was a gasoline riot because they ended the subsidies for gasoline and the prices went way up. But then all of a sudden there are men taking out banks, taking out airports. You have like mercenary, Mujahideen fighters and, and, and professional mercenaries on the ground hitting important strategic points all over the country, attempting to do a real coup and overthrow the government there. That's not a protest movement. Yeah, it might have had regular people out in the street protesting, but what's that got to do with anything? When you have armed mercs backed by the Americans and the Turks running around, you know? So I think you could argue then, was that just stupid? Or was that designed to provoke? The New York Times has a story about how America's been pouring in all these weapons. And as they put it, the amount of weapons is carefully calibrated to not provoke too strong of a reaction from the Russians. So now I ask you, are they very poor at calibration? <laughs> or did they, in fact, calibrate these armed shipments to be a provocation and to get the result that they've got? Now, here's what really drove me over the top on this argument, man, was, and I had missed this. It's my fault. I've been too busy, still focused on the Middle East and fighting the last war. But now I've gone back and looked. And are you familiar with David Ignatius, the opinion writer at the Washington Post? Yeah. Well, he's basically the CIA's man at the Post. Well, one of them. But very, he's very close to them. And I think a, a part of his official biography is he used to be a CIA officer. <laughs> and he is now very, very much in charge of telling the Washington Post audience what the CIA thinks kind of a thing. And he started running these stories in December. And there are now at least two major stories by Ignatius, at least two other stories in the Washington Post in the news section. There's at least one major story in the New York Times and one in Yahoo News and one by a former CIA officer in the Council on Foreign Relations Journal Foreign Affairs. And what they all say is, let's fight an insurgency in Ukraine. They all take for granted that the Russian state military, of course, will be able to smash the Ukrainian army and take over the country. No question about that. Let's bog them down. The next uh, they thing. want, yeah, and, and so now if you read the New York Times version of this, they're like, hey, 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 Jimmy, trust us, man. This is plan B. We really, really, really want to dissuade the Russians from invading. But if they do, then this is what we have for in store for them. But I have to tell you, when you start reading all of those things I just mentioned, the two post stories, the two Ignatius columns, 
the New York Times story, the Yahoo News story, Dorfman is the name on the Yahoo News story about the CIA taking these guys to America to train them and sending them back. The article in Foreign Affairs by the CIA guy, mm. this is something they've been planning for a long time. And they say that. We've been training the military in Ukraine for what? This whole time we've been training for what? Just to fight in the Donbass against the Russian separatists? No. And to train them to deter Russia from invading? Well, all the training and all the weapons sure didn't deter Russia from <laughs> invading, did it? But then you find them. I swear to God, you see, it's, this is the thing, man. The Hillary Clinton quote is part of it too. But you see, over and over, you see the same terminology. This is what they say. They go, well... We don't know the first thing about how to defeat an insurgency. We admit that. But we do know how to support one. And look at how we did in Afghanistan to the Russians in the 80s and how we did in Syria to Bashar al-Assad in the Obama years. We're going to do that again. Now look, a million Afghans were killed by the Soviets in the war of the 1980s. You know, I spent the last... 15, 20 years telling people this is what Osama was doing to us with September 11th, was getting us to replicate the Soviets' failure in Afghanistan, to get ourselves bogged down, bled to bankruptcy, and forced out the long way and the hard way. And there's an obvious point here. What a horrible SOB Osama bin Laden was, that that was his plan, was that we'll fight you to the last Afghan, and if the Americans come and kill another million Afghans, what does his born rich Saudi ass care about them? Nothing. Let Allah sort them out. Well, that's America and Ukraine right now. That's their policy. Why isn't Anthony Blinken, our Secretary of State in Geneva right now, meeting with Sergei Lavrov to end this war? When Putin's demands are, we want neutrality for Ukraine. We want you to recognize that the Crimea has belonged to Russia since 1783 and now it does again. Fate accompli. That ship sailed in 2014, kids. Sorry. Why can't we just agree to that? Why can't we just agree to that? And why couldn't Biden just put it in writing in December? He's just childish about the open door policy, Jimmy. Or he was baiting the trap for the Russians. They think they're smart. They want to replicate what we did in Afghanistan. You know, half a million people were killed in the dirty war in Syria, where again, America, after September 11th, after Iraq War II, America was on the side of the Al-Qaeda guys. We were fighting for Al-Qaeda in Iraq, in Syria, in that whole damn war. That's what led to the rise of the caliphate. And these Democrats are talking about, yeah, man, let's do more like that again to the Russians. In fact, in the Obama years, there's a story in The Intercept about how jihadist terrorists from Obama's dirty CIA war in Syria were going to Ukraine to fight with the Nazis against the Russian separatists. You can read it in The Intercept. <laughs> Syrian terrorists going to Ukraine to fight with the Ukrainian Nazis against the Russian separatists in the Donbass region. Hmm. No BS. And it's like, what are you guys doing here? Well, we're Chechens. And we went to fight with our terrorist friends in Syria. But also, we're Chechens, so we hate Russians. So now we're here fighting with our Nazi friends against Russians. Right there. And you can't make this stuff up, dude. If I made this stuff up, you'd kick my ass right out of here. You know it's true. Go Google it yourself. It's all out there for you to see. And so that's why I believe that this was actually their plan. 
that they could have negotiated a peace, they could have avoided this war, and that, you know, again, that doesn't deprive Vladimir Putin and his men of their responsibility for the choices that they have made here. But it does mean that the Americans, you know, not just created the Cold War and the entire circumstance here, but it looks like they even have directly baited this trap. And just keep your eye on the cable news and you'll hear them talking about it over and over. Oh, I'm sorry. One more thing here, man. Was did you see the clip of Hillary Clinton on MSNBC last week? So she was going off. It's a lot like when you have me in here mm -hmm. and I just won't shut up. <laughs> well, it's MSNBC. Anybody else on a cable TV news show, they only let you talk for like a minute and a half max. You know what I mean? Well, they just let her go on and on and on. And man, is it something to behold? You really got to see it. Okay. First of all, what she's saying is, this is what we need to do. And she's saying, and a lot of people are thinking about this now. She means people in government. Mm. All right, this is what we're thinking about now. Is this is what we want to do? And she's just like we did to the Russians in Afghanistan in the 80s, just like we did to the Syrians. We're going to arm up this insurgency. We're going to bleed them dry and they're going to force them out the hard way and all of this stuff. And I swear to God, this is true, dude. In the middle of this rant, and she's talking about arming up the Afghan Mujahideen in the 80s. She goes, of course, there were some unintended consequences in that. <laughs> but anyway, so what happened was it worked really well and it did force the Russians out. And we think that we could do that in Syria now, blah, 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 blah. In and so, Syria. Um, pardon me, in Ukraine. Okay. Um, thank you, because I didn't even hear myself say that wrong. <laughs> um, but then, so here's the thing. She, she literally writes off the entire terrorist war against the United States and the entire United States war on terrorism over the last 30 years, beginning when she and her husband had been in power for a month and a week on February the 26th, 1993, when Egyptian Islamic Jihad tried to blow up the World Trade Center the first time. And they blew up, they, they killed Americans in Saudi Arabia, training the National Guard there. They blew up the Kobar Towers and killed 19 American airmen. They killed hundreds and hundreds of diplomatic employees and civilians at the Africa Embassy bombings in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, Nairobi, Kenya, 98. They killed 17 sailors on the USS Cole trying to sink it in port in Aden, Yemen in 2000. They killed 3,000 American civilians on September 11th. And then America launched a war. Sorry for going off. This is my thing. America launched a war based on that attack that has killed 2 million people. Has killed 7,000 American KIA. 30 thousand suicides of American soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines come home from these wars and guardsmen come home from these wars. 30,000 suicides, $10 trillion blown. Virtually every nation from Nigeria to India turned upside down, radicalized in terms of religion and politics and everything else, a sectarian civil war between the Saudi-led Sunnis and the Iranian-led Shiites and a war for Baghdad that's going to last for the rest of your great-grandchildren's lifetimes. As George W. Bush gave that city to the Shiites and there ain't a damn thing the Sunnis can do to take it back except die trying. They're going to fling suicide bombers at Baghdad for the rest of your life. And Hillary Clinton writes all this off with a wave of her hand. Oh, by the way, again, she was Billary. She was co-president. She wasn't just the first lady. She was co-president with Bill 
when the terror war against us, the terrorist war against us began in 1993. And through eight years of not just getting attacked by them, but as we talked about, backing the bad guys. You know, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed that did 9-11, he earned his stripes fighting for Bill Clinton in Kosovo in, 19, in, pardon me, in Bosnia in 1994. That's how he made his way in the Mujahideen. So she was riding shotgun with Bill while they were constantly attacked by Al-Qaeda mm-hmm. and continued to back them anyway. Then when they hit us on September 11th, she was in the Senate. She's George Bush's handmaid and voted for everything he wanted to do for eight years straight and supported every bit of it, all the surges, everything else. Then she loses to Obama, but becomes his secretary of state, where again, she's riding shotgun and she takes a side. We need to be on the side of Al Qaeda in Libya and in Syria. And in fact, did the regime change in Yemen that led to the war in Yemen. This woman is one of the single most responsible human beings in our society for the war on terrorism. Not just she was there and saw it like the rest of us. She was in on it for 30 years. And then when she's talking about replicating the Afghan war in Ukraine, in Europe, by arming up a bunch of Hitler-loving Nazis to serve as her Mujahideen stay-behind forces there, She writes off the entire war on terrorism with a wave of her hand and a giggle. Mm. Of course, there were some unintended consequences from that. But anyway, Mm. that's who these people are. That's the mindset of the American government. It's the mindset of Hillary Clinton. And in fact, that might be a good place for me to finally shut up and end this show, Jimmy. Is that (laughs) for all the hawks out there saying, geez, I don't know. I'm pretty hawkish on this Russia thing. Well, you agree with Hillary on that. Hillary, who announced the Great Reset with Russia, and we were going to get along with Russia, if only she hadn't lied them into supporting the resolution for the war in Libya, which she said was just going to be a no-fly zone, and which turned into a massive regime change war, spreading chaos onto Syria and throughout Africa and the rest of it. She's the one who ruined the reset. And then, but no, it's all his fault. It's all their fault. Why does Putin do what he does? He's evil. And you know what evil men do. Bad things. And you know whose fault this is? All his. Mm. And there's nothing else you need to know. But look whose narrative that is. It's Hillary Clinton. The least credible person in our society (laughs) to make a claim. So why in the world would we listen to her? Well, I think that's a good place to end it. That was very informative. And I think we learned a lot about what's actually been going on in the Ukraine and not just what Hillary Clinton wants us to know. Well, I I hope that was worth your time, everybody. And if you go to antiwar.com slash Scott, you'll find my 18,000 word speech. (laughs) It's a two hour long video and an 18,000 word article where I have all the block quotes you could possibly need of all of these people admitting the truth of my claims for you here. Yeah. I really hope this gets resolved in a more peaceful fashion. But anyway, um, thank you for coming on. Happy to be here. Thank you. So how can Bitcoiners support your work and what's going on here? Uh, Thanks for asking that. We actually just wrapped up our fund drive at antiwar.com. But believe me, we have uh, very low funds and, you know, always continually need support from people to continue to get by. I think 
Anybody listening to this who really appreciated it probably knows too that there's not too many places in the world where you can go to get this kind of context to what's really going on. And antiwar.com is the most important project on the internet. That's why I'm so proud to be a part of it. I didn't invent the thing. I'm riding along. I'm the editorial director there, but I really am proud of it. And there's a great group of people and it's all of the best columnists and all the most important news every day. And even on Christmas, believe me, we work 365 days a year there at antiwar.com. And I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, where we also got a great group of guys who, you know, also foreign policy really is our specialty, but we, we have a lot, you know, a bit broader stuff there than that as well. And you know the game. I mean, I don't like asking for money, but these are <laughs> 501c3 organizations. We don't charge prices. We give away our stuff. And then we ask for your donations at the door. And so I think, you know, for especially for an audience like yours, Jimmy, where everybody's uh, one kind of Bitcoin millionaire or another out there, we could really use your help. And especially when Bitcoins are going at a discount right now, cost you guys a little bit less to get rid of some. <laughs> but then you know that when the price of Bitcoin doubles again, which it's sure to do sometime very soon, that you'll be getting double the bank for your buck for your donation to our cause as well. And we do run a very tight ship. I mean, I'm really not ashamed to ask for this money because we don't waste a dime of it at either of these organizations. And so I'll just leave it at that. It's uh, antiwar.com slash donate and libertarianinstitute.org slash donate. And I'm very grateful. And on behalf of both teams at both organizations are very grateful for any support that uh, you and your listeners would uh, see fit to help to share with us. And thank you again, Jimmy. Thank you. Unchained Capital is a sponsor of this podcast. I'm an advisor to the company. I know the team well, and I'm excited for what they are building. If you need multi-sig collaborative custody or a Bitcoin native financial services partner, learn more at Unchained dot com well that wraps it up for this episode of bitcoin fixes this scott horton can be found at at scott horton show on twitter and libertarianinstitute.com as well as antiwar.com until next time fiat the lendest